The results from North American Vintage Champs on episode 84 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 84 of So Many Insane Plays, our Vintage Championship and Eternal Weekend recap. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. We would normally have upcoming tournament announcements here, but all of our tournaments are either so close <laughs> that they'll be done by the time the show posts or too distant in the future to have been planned. So we don't really want to cover those here and now, but we do want to talk about one key piece of news that is highly relevant to the vintage community who plays Magic on Magic Online. This is some pretty big news. It, it really, really is. So there was an announcement just earlier this week on November 12 from Wizards relating to the Magic Online Championship for 2019. In fact, the title of the article is 2019 Magic Online Championship, posted by Ali Medwin. There's a lot of detail in here about the schedules and when points will be changed over to the new season and other things like that. But there's one key thing that is part of this announcement that I'm going to read verbatim. Format Focus Events. Easily the biggest change, the brand new format-focused events take the existing format challenge events and turn them into the first step in Premier Play qualification. With format-focused events, you can play your favorite formats all the way to the Pro Tour. Even better, no prizes are being removed to make room for these format-focused events. The The entry options aren't changing either. Instead, all players in format challenge events will get new format points, FPs, on top of their other prizes, if any. Those FPs can qualify them for the format playoff events, which lead to the format championship and maybe even the Magic Online championship and the Pro Tour. Yes, this means that Magic Online players will get to qualify for the Pro Tour playing Pauper or Vintage or Legacy, or Modern. (laughs) Choose your format, succeed at it, and you can write it all the way to the top. End quote. So, very important news. And it sounds like it might be hyperbole to say you could play Vintage all the way to the Pro Tour, but it is technically accurate. Now, we're going to talk about what this means for Pro Tour qualification, but it's not the only implication of having these nice new format focus events. Right. Well, the, the headline is, you can now qualify for the Pro Tour with Vintage, But I actually think the more interesting announcement or news, if you will, from this is that they're bringing format championships to Magic Online. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So now we not only have the Asia Vintage Championship, the European Vintage Championship, and the North American Vintage Championship, but now we have the Vintage Format Championship. (laughs) The Magic Online Vintage Champion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's huge news. I think it's amazing. So you have to click the one of the links in there, but it gives you a schedule. And what the mm-hmm. schedule basically says is that there are these four up to 400 player format playoffs that happen once a quarter. So the mm-hmm. first is mark your calendars, <laughs> March <laughs> Saturday, March 30th. So I assume it will be in place of the Vintage Challenge that day. 
because it would be the same time as the Vintage Challenge. Yes, the playoffs are taking the place of the challenge for that particular week. And which means that there will be moving, there will only be 48 Vintage Challenges next year. Then the second is Saturday, June 29th. The third is going to be Saturday, September 14th. So not the end of that month. And then the fourth is Saturday, December 7th. And then the Vintage Championship itself, at least according to this website, (coughs) is going to be Saturday, January 4th, 2020. And it will, can the winner of that, which will be a 32 player tournament. So the top four of each of those qualifier events will make it into the championship. But that only, Kevin, that only gives you 16 players, right? I I think it's the top eight. Top eight? Okay. Yeah. So that's the, what happens if there's a, well, we can get to the the various aspect (laughs) questions about it earlier. I assume maybe that'll drop down to the next. But the point is that January 4th, 2020, at 11 a.m., which is weird because so maybe it'll be simultaneously with the challenge. That's probably why it's at 11 because it'll be an hour after the challenge starts. You can actually win the format championship and qualify for the Pro Tour. And it's, right. it'll be Pro Tour 2020 number two. That is awesome. <laughs> it really is. So just in case people are not understanding the mechanism here, these, these format points are the thing that you get from winning existing vintage events. Those are leagues and challenges. Not just from winning, but from placing in them. You get these points from leagues and challenges. You need 35 of those points to play in a format playoff. Right. That's the, the, the monthly. Quarterly. The, sorry, the quarterly event. Yeah. And you need 35 of them. How do you get 35 points? Well, you get five points for getting five wins in a league. So undefeated in a league gives you five points. Means undefeated in seven leagues and you're in a one of the format playoffs. Or... They're more generous during the challenge top eights. So the first place for a challenge is 35 points, meaning win a challenge and you're automatically Qualified. have enough points Yeah, for the next playoff. Second place is 10 points. Third and fourth are five points. Fifth through eighth are four points. So the actually, it's pretty top heavy in terms of the FPs. So either consistently good in leagues or consistently placing in challenges will get you enough. And the good news is, is they don't expire for the whole year. So it's so not like you need... if you're qualified in Q1, you can play the rest of the year? No, what I'm getting at, that's, a, that's also true. But what it means is, is that <clears throat> you, you don't have to get them per quarter. You don't need 35 in a quarter. You can assemble 35 over nine months and play the last playoff of the year okay. in 2019. But you, ex- but you expend your points when you enter into one of the yeah. qualifiers. Yeah, okay. you do. Yep. That's one of the entry costs is 35 points. And then the winner of each format championship is qualified for both the mocks and the next pro tour. The mocks. <laughs> yep. M O C S. Yeah. Very cleverly and vintage relevant name to that event. Yeah. So we're going to have a vintage champion in 2020, Magic Online vintage champion in January of 2020. And that person will be qualified for a subsequent pro tour that year. Pro Tour number two. Yep. Should we call it the 2019 format challenge? I mean, vintage challenge champion. You know, much yeah. like much like in football, the, the right, yeah, the, just, the yeah. national title is is in the next year, but it's really. I think that's apt. Yes, I do think that's apt. It says it, it says in the website it's called the 2019 season. So yeah, absolutely, and the, the champions will just be the championships will occur. Uh, in in the first week of the the new year of 2020, yet another fun event to look for in early look forward to in early January. <laughs> well, I think I think one of the other implications is that, is that this is a signal. Well, it's more than a signal; it's an outright statement of commitment to Magic Online. People have been afraid. It is with Arena and all of that that they're 
going to be backing away. No, this is a doubling down. And it reinforces those things that Magic Online does well, which is competitive play and eternal formats. Yes. Obviously, Modern's not eternal, but the other three formats that were described here specifically are. Popper, yeah. And hopefully, if things work out right, we'll get even more players playing in these events. So I'm I'm super excited. It seems pretty likely that at least some of our vintage... Our regular pro vintage players, right? LSV and and Sperling and others. It oh, yeah. seems like a shoe in for them to be Absolutely. pushing to, to to qualify this way. Now, I mean, LSV doesn't need to qualify, but it seems it draws <laughs> a, uh, attention, and there will probably be more like them who yeah. really yeah. seek to qualify through this method because there are definitely some longstanding pros that have a love of vintage, and that's great. Well, the fact that you automatically qualify for the Pro Tour, you don't have to win the mocks, you just right. automatically get to it, seems to me to be an enormous draw. I mean, f- effectively, you just have to win, if you win it one challenge, and then you win one, qual- get in the top eight of it a qualifier, and then you win this 32-player tournament, you're in the Pro Tour. Yeah. That's that's not that's not a bad route, <laughs> right? I mean, you could get... Yeah, when you say it like that, it sounds pretty you nice. You win like a 50-player challenge... Get eighth place in one of the first one of the qualifiers, and then win a thirty-two player tournament. You're in. You're in Pro yeah. Tour number two. Yep, it's pretty cool. And we will have the first person to qualify for the Pro Tour by playing Pauper only, which is pretty fun too. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to Legacy Vintage and Modern, I love it. Steve, other announcements? Well, I just want to remind everyone that uh, there's still Vintage challenges this year. Although my understanding is they will not be getting qualifications until 2019. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Um, but I did want to just related to that, Kevin. Um, I began compiling the data, updating my spreadsheet of vintage challenge results. And we periodically reported out on that just as a, as an interesting note. October had one of the most interesting aggregate results of the entire year, Kevin, <laughs> in that it was the first month of the entire year where no deck had more than 20% of top eights. Wow, I didn't notice that. And not only that, there are four decks that were 10 to 20% of top eights with a fifth survival at 9%. So October was technically, in terms of the Vintage Challenges, the most balanced month of the entire year. That's really, really interesting. Do you think that that has anything to do with the proximity to Vintage Champs? Hard to say. Or do you think it's just a natural evolution of the online metagame? It's really hard to say. I mean, Stacks, PO, Xerox decks and Dredge were all between 10 and 20%. (laughs) And I mean, those were all, you know, fairly well-represented decks. I I, I don't know. I mean, it's weird because we've seen months where PO, Xerox, Shops, and even other decks were above 20% of top eights, but none, I mean, none were more than 20%. I I don't know. I really don't know. I I think it actually speaks more to anything to a really balanced metagame. But yeah, just yeah, I'm to, I'm loath to chalk it up to champs prep or anything like that, but it is very interesting that it happened right before champs too. Yeah, well, I'll be tracking I'll be tracking that through the end of the year through the end of the year, and at the end of the year, I'll probably do a write up of the vintage challenge results, or maybe I can, we can discuss it in our end of the year show. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll take a look at the entire year through vintage challenges and the big big paper events. But I just thought I would throw that out there and 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 tease folks and what their appetite for the end of the year show. <laughs> All right, sounds good. 
So for the remainder of this episode, we have a number of topics surrounding Vintage Champs and Eternal Weekend to cover. We're going to talk about some interesting economic news that happened to the dealers there. (laughs) We're going to talk about our tournament experience, some notes about the trials and their structure on site at Eternal Weekend. There was some key fundraising for charity throughout the weekend. And of course, we'll talk about the metagame results and how they stacked up against our predictions, which our audience didn't hear yet this year but we did actually put down on paper before we left. So I think we should get out of it. What do you think? Let's do it. Let's start with the big picture. I mean, Eternal Weekend is more than a tournament. <laughs> it's an event. It's a, a place, you know, where, you know, like Gen Con, where gamers come together who are really passionate about these formats and mm-hmm. get to enjoy them. You know, for for me, it's all about old school and vintage. Um, for you, I mean, you like to do some trading. And it's also, of course, the key part of it is social, getting to see your friends. Yep. Um what was your overall big picture experience like, Kevin? Did you enjoy this Eternal Weekend? How did it stack up? I thought this was an especially good one. The last two have been very similar in this vein. The The experience is like a, a, a modest GP, right? There's a, there's a huge dealer presence, and the dealers come out with all of their best wares for the Eternal audience. Just all manner of alpha beta stuff, stacks and stacks of graded stuff piles of beta power and alpha power you know that kind of thing is just all over the place so for people like you and me and people who are sympathetic to the the nostalgia of those cards it's it's just kind of like being at toys r us when you're a kid right right (laughs) um so that part's really fun the artists just continue year after year to be fantastic uh inclusions in terms of quality artists and and old school with lowercase os uh, artists from from alpha and beta and there's some stalwarts like Mark Poole and Mark Tidine who are there year after year. And then every every year there's a couple of different new people. Um, it That's just a fantastic air to the thing. And nothing can really... Nothing can really trump the the social aspect, as you said, getting to hang out with friends near and far. I traveled this year with a, a carload of friends from Michigan, which was awesome. And and for two years in a row now, we've gotten together in a restaurant on Saturday uh, afternoon or evening to watch Michigan play their college football <laughs> game. It's kind of a funny out-of-town thing to do, but... Um, yeah, the social aspect is great. I wish I, I wish I could be there for another week just to go, go to dinner and go to drinks with all the different people that there are there yeah. and all the different combinations of people and friends. Yeah, you can't really you, you don't really get an opportunity to say hi and see everyone. There's Especially so much on to the, do on the day of champs, right? I yeah. mean, I ate once that day, which is <laughs> an awful shame. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's front front loaded for us and or especially for you. Because you you go you play in the trials on Thursday, the vintage championship on Friday, yep. and then what and did then you I'm do? Done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't play a game of Magic after the last round of champs wow. that, that weekend. Yeah, I just hung out, talked to people, did a little wheeling and dealing, and just watched Michigan play. It was you know just it was purely <laughs> social thereafter. Right. And I didn't even do anything that Magic players are want to do a lot of, which is play your favorite casual format like middle school or old school you know a uh, cube draft or any of this jazz i didn't do any of that stuff and did i would you love bring to your, have did you bring your type four stack i did not i was i intentionally like i never do this year over year i didn't bring an edh deck it just never happened 
but that's just a testament to the fact that there's too many hours in the day walking around the hall i could i couldn't go 20 feet without running into another person who i wanted to chat with right (laughs) (laughs) yeah you mean too few hours in the day that's what i mean yeah Yeah. there are too few hours in the day um yeah it was an amazing weekend you know it's really an incredible experience i remember when it was first announced that gen con would no longer have the championships you and i had a whole segment of one of our shows speculating what would happen of course we laid out all the possibilities one of the possibilities was that they would have a special event which is eventually what happened and this has proven to be a very uh, successful model because it's been replicated in europe and now asia Mm -hmm. Um, and I, i love eternal weekend as you said i love going around looking at all the stuff the dealers have out i had some specific goals that i was trying to meet in particular around picking up some alpha cards for the alpha card 40 tournament I'm playing next year. And I accomplished most of the goals. I, I did not accomplish my goal of picking up a second alpha Lotus, although I, I think I came within <laughs> striking distance of doing that. But um, <laughs> I you know got that several sounds other awesome alpha cards. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes. And we'll, yeah. uh, we'll have plenty of time to talk more about alpha card 40. <laughs> Kevin and I, <laughs> one of the evenings we spent a good couple of hours just playing that format, you which know, was really fun. It's funny. I forgot. I forgot about that because that definitely falls under the heading of of your favorite Games. casual format, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> that I mentioned earlier. It's just a very, very obscure one. So I guess I did spend some time playing my favorite casual format with friends. <laughs> and thank you for that. We learned a lot about the. We did. The, it was very about educational. The- about the kind of extreme <laughs> dynamics within the format by setting up different things, but we'll talk about that another another yeah, time. That's a good um, topic. Yeah, no, eternal. Well, Pittsburgh, we can, I think we can is save a, that for yeah when you get closer to your actual event. Definitely, Pittsburgh is a, a really good place for the tournament. It's got a very bizarre and unusual topography. The way in which <laughs> yeah. it's like the city is situated in the bridges. You, I mean, it's probably one of the more unusual cities in the country, and the and it's it's there's a lot to do. I mean. The German town, which we stayed in, was really nice. Had great restaurants, um, good yep. good beer halls. You know, places to grab a drink. Uh, everything was really proximate. Um, I enjoyed. I went and saw the uh, the dinosaur museum there, which was incredible. Had like three different T Rexes. Last year, I went to the <laughs> art museum there, and I I also went to the the um, I, I love the mattress factory, which is an art installation place in North Pittsburgh. I didn't go this year because my on my day off I went to the, like I said, to see some dinos, um, <laughs> which were really really incredible. They I mean they had probably the largest collection of T Rexes in the world. That's it, awesome. It was really amazing. But anyway, it's a, it was an amazing experience. There were pluses and minuses. I think the biggest thing that I was frustrated with and the decision I had made last year was that I would no longer play old school mm. as long as it conflicted with the trials. Because the old school event was always held on Thursday, yep. And um, thankfully, I think you know Jaco heard my complaints and decided to move it to Sunday, and so we could play in the trials. The hall was supposed to open at noon, and I was standing there waiting for it. You know, the front of the line waiting for it to open. It really didn't open until about twelve twenty, and the trials were supposed to start at one. And the trials they originally announced a trials vintage trial at one and five. They added a, a, a third at three, which was a good move. I think the legacy trials were two and six, and then they added one at four. Mm-hmm. But my fear going into that was that people wouldn't be able to play in two trials. So that if you ran, if you if you won your first three or four rounds and then lost your last round, you wouldn't be able to drop and jump into the second trial because you couldn't play in two full flights of trials. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> I went 4-0 
and then I lost my last round, and I couldn't uh, drop and get into the next. It was so frustrating. Uh, <laughs> Kevin, uh, you so awful. You went five and zero oh, though. You won your buy, right? Yeah, I won the first trial of the day that Thursday. I mean, one in the sense that there are multiple five O's, but and you yeah, and you also undefeated. defeated the Atog Lord in your your trial. If That's I right. I defeated many time top eight competitor Rich Shea on my way to that particular <laughs> buy. Uh, there have been many interesting matches between you and Rich over the years. Not to yeah. not to mention myself, but um, <laughs> and I and so <clears throat> you know, and the trials were fun, Kevin. I mean, you know, we got to. It was. I mean, how many players played in that first trial? Like eighty players. It was a big. It was yeah, a it big, was big tournament, and uh, it was yeah. just very frustrating to lose the last round. It was even more frustrating because my opponent played not poorly but sloppily, <laughs> and so I was getting increasingly uh, tilted <laughs> during the course of that round. Uh, he apologized at the that's end. That's too bad. Um. And then I, I lost a very close match that I could have easily won. So I was really frustrated not to have a buy, and it was compounded by the fact that I couldn't jump into another tournament to try and win a buy. And then further right, compounded right. by my round one. I mean, the whole point of getting the buy is to try <laughs> and avoid a certain class subset of decks, <laughs> you know, that you that, that I did I wanted to avoid getting paired with. We'll talk about more when we get to our tournament reports. And yeah. then predictably, I my round one was against one of those decks. So mm-hmm. it's kind of screwed up my whole arc of the weekend for me. So that was disappointing. So I, I told I told Nick Koss that I thought that they should try and rethink think the trial structure so that players can play in at least a full trial and then get into another one. And he explained the logistical challenges that, you know, takes them hours in the morning to set up and they open the hall at noon and they have to get everyone out by a certain time. And so I suggested some possible solutions that he's going to look into to do mm-hmm. to deal with that. So I'm hopeful that'll get worked out next year. Yeah, I'm hopeful too because I uh, we don't we don't want to punish people who go four and one like you did, who are some of the better performers in a given trial or a trials on average, whereas other players who just go <laughs> oh one <laughs> yeah. just get to play in multiple trials. Yeah, I so mean the, it, the current structure actually favors people who aren't going as deep into the trial. <laughs> I mean it was the worst possible outcome for me. If I had gone yeah. three and one, I would have been able to get into the f- the five o'clock one and get more vintage experience right. too, more play and enjoy playing more. And it's not, I mean, the the whole reason to get in the trials isn't just to try and win the buy. It's because we love sure. vintage. We want the competition. Sure. So it was the worst. And you want to, yeah, you want the last minute practice for the next day. Losing the last round in that situation is literally the worst possible outcome. <laughs> yep. Yep. So what's next? Well, I think we should dive into. Um, the metagame, the overall metagame. Reveal our predictions before, and, and let's talk about the overall metagame. And then we'll talk about um, our performances, and then we'll go to the top eight. Awesome. Awesome. So shall we reveal our individual predictions and then talk about what the actual was for each major archetype? Yes. Is that the yes. approach? So as I alluded to before, we did not record, well, everyone knows this, we did not record a prep show for Champs this year. However, we usually Steve do. And I did. Yeah. We usually do. Yeah. But Steve and I did have a conversation in which we took notes about our predictions for the metagame, and we're holding ourselves to these notes here. So there's no there's no chicanery. We're not trying to make ourselves look better or worse here. <laughs> but you'll, you will just have to take our word for that. Well, we have documentary evidence. As, I mean, we input it into a Google it's document. True. It's true. <laughs> and you can see it's the... It's going to sound pretty input. self-serving with the first example, though, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> there's just no way to avoid that. 
So we'll run effectively top to bottom, although the order, well, the order is not entirely perfect. So we'll start with shops, right? We're probably going to be starting with shops in perpetuity unless something major changes. Steve, you and I discussed it looking at the history, the recent history of the challenges, as well as recent history in terms of vintage well, champs. Well, and we well, both... Hold on. Let me just add yeah. one more explanatory note. So oh, okay. the way in which Kevin and I set this up is that we, we didn't have time to record and, and, and edit, and that's why we didn't do a preview show. So what we did was Kevin and I both gave ourselves a homework assignment. We would individually make our predictions on paper, yes. and then we would meet, and then we would discuss it, and then record our predictions. I actually recorded on a spreadsheet, and then we documented it into this Google Doc. And so, we, and during the course of the discussion, I changed my original predictions, modified them, just like we would do on a podcast. So, yeah. the, the predictions that we have on paper that we're going to show you, or reveal, were those that were the result of our usual dialogue not necessarily our initial <laughs> impulse predictions <laughs> yeah good point very good point and those of you who are longtime listeners will probably appreciate the fact that we're going to haggle over one or two percentage points yes. here <laughs> like we we did in our conversation we and we'll cover it here so if any of you are listening to this kind of discussion for the first time this is pretty normal for us so on to shops then after some discussion steve and i i think you and i started maybe Actually, no, in this one, we talked about it without revealing our percentages first, and then we both stated our number, and it was actually the same. I think that's how that conversation went, because we both ended up predicting 18% for shops. Yeah. And wonder of wonders, the actual percentage of the metagame for shops was (laughs) 18.09%, as close to 18 as it mathematically could be, which is incredible. (laughs) <laughs> well, we lo- we looked at a number of different factors. We looked at last year's shops perform- uh, representation. We looked at the Vintage Challenge results, and we looked at the Star City Games Top 32, or Day 2 deck list, rather. We looked at a lot of data points, and we triangulated mm-hmm. all of them, and we both independently landed on 18%, <laughs> which is remarkable, <laughs> it was but it was funny. dead on, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and not all of our predictions were like no. that. We were pretty far off in, in a few other places. Just, I should take this moment to say that we have 376 individual decks reported for this event from a uh, archetype standpoint. We don't have all 376 of those because not all decks were, not all lists were turned in, even no, though we know the archetypes. No, no, that's not. So there were about five that were missing. Ryan Eberhardt tracked those people down and got the deck, the archetypes. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. I, I didn't know that. So I was just going by what Jayco had listed yeah. no, in Jayco, his tournament. Yeah, Jayco's tournament. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. But Jayco's uh, has the complete scan of every deck list. <laughs> yeah, as he usually does, which is great. Yeah. And, and we should also add that this the metagame breakdown here is courtesy of Ryan and Matt, who yes. have been in the habit of providing this service for our community for a while now. So we're grateful for that. Definitely. Oh, and Kevin, uh, can we just also mention that we... Both you and I, well, I had predicted that I thought the overall attendance would be above 350, but below last year's. So, yeah. and yeah, we didn't actually put that number on paper, a specific number on paper, but your estimation was right. There were 381 players registered, five of whom no showed for the first round, which is why we have 376 unique decks. Yeah. And, and while we're on that, I just wanted to point out that I don't really see the, the decline from last year as a real issue or a statement on the metagame, given that a lot of the people who didn't show were people like Hiromichi Ito or Mark Lanigra, Europeans mm-hmm. and Asians 
who now have their own internal weekend and couldn't make all of them. So, yeah. you know, the fact that there is a proliferation of this event means that it's just going to become a little bit more continental than it has in the past. And so I wouldn't I wouldn't interpret that as any profound statement about the state of the format. <laughs> yeah, also this weekend's proximity to Halloween probably hurt attendance a little bit. Agreed. <clears throat> so, anyway, back to the topic at hand. 18% of 376 players is exactly 68 players on shops just for reference. And so, Steve and I, we, you and I both nailed that one. Do you want to go in the order that we have listed in our doc here? Or do you want to go in overall metagame percentage? Let's order? go with overall metagame percentage. All right. In that case, next up is paradoxical outcome. Yeah, yeah, buddy. I predicted twelve. I predicted twelve percent, which was a significant increase so, from last, last year. Last year's was shockingly low. Yeah, it was. And so I was predicting a fair increase. Steve, you predicted 15%, which is an even greater increase. The actual was 15.4%. <laughs> so spot on for Steve. Um, actually, I think it's technically mathematically possible it could have been closer to 15 with one fewer player. But anyway, spot on prediction for Steve there. And a, a huge increase, a huge increase in the representation for outcome year over year. Yeah. Last year, I think we all expected it to be at least 10%, and it was something like 4 or 5%. It was really tiny. Yeah, yeah. So outcome really showing its its strength here, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's surging in the metagame. In third position, metagame-wise, is Xerox. I predicted 13%. Steve predicted 12 The actual was 14%. So very close predictions for us here on Xerox. Yeah, you were 1% and off. Very I was 2% off. <laughs> Yeah, and very interesting that Xerox in this event was now the the third most common archetype instead of the second, which it had been for most of this year on average. Now there's not as much of a drop as you might think to the fourth place deck, but that fits with what we've been observing in the vintage metagame going into this event. Next is Oath. I predicted 12% under the expectation that Oath is always a bit overrepresented at champs. You predicted 9%. The actual was 10%. It was 1% off. (laughs) 1% 1% <laughs> off, right between our predictions. So I was overestimating Oath, I think, a little bit this year. I think that uh, Outcome may have uh, eaten a little bit of those players' lunch, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. in terms of who played what. But still, pr- pretty good predictions for us, slightly better for you. Oath continues to be a strong performer at Champs, in terms of representation, right. I mean. Uh, it's, its overall results obviously can't compare to last year's, but I don't think that I don't think the top eight representation year over year is going to have a strong influence on the fact that there's going to be about 10% oath year over year. Its win percentage was it's, very poor, though, at, at 42%. Yeah. But yeah. I think it's, it continues to be buoyed by having new and fun toys year over year, too. Like this year, I know there were several oath players packing Niv-Mizzet, which is a fun new thing. Right. So that's the top four. That is Shops, Outcome, Xerox, and Oath. The fifth most represented deck which won't surprise too many after listening to our show, is Dredge. I predicted 12%. Steve predicted 10 The actual was only 8% this year. Dredge was difficult to predict this time because Dredge has had some pretty wildly varying vintage challenge representation it, over the course of this year. It as oscillates we discussed in prior wildly. Shows. I mean, it goes yeah. from ba- basically being a huge part of the top eights and huge part of the metagame to disappearing, to being huge again. So... Um, yeah. I thought 10% was about right, given that, you know, there'll be, there, they would be dredge experts and, you know, you don't have to have power. You just need four bazaars. So 8% was a little bit on the lower side. I mean, you had 12%. 
which was where you had yep. oath, but 8%, I think was in, you know, obviously striking distance of my 10 and your 12. And we're going to get to another deck in a couple of minutes that might speak to the reason why you and I both overpredicted Dredge. The next most numerous category is actually not really a deck, but the other category, 7.5%, and that's a, a mishmash of a lot, a lot of things. So we're not really going to speak to that. That's always kind of there. And we always expect it to be about 5%. It was a little bit more this year. Mine was My prediction for the other, though, was 7%. <laughs> being yeah, pretty seven good. And a half. Pretty good. So after that, the next most numerous archetype is Eldrazi. And you and I both predicted the same number, which was pretty far off in hindsight. We both predicted 9% when the actual was only 6%. And I think you and I were both heavily influenced by Eldrazi's fairly high representation last right. year, which surprised us. Right. And so we overshot this year, and it, it did not represent. Yeah, I mean, overshot. I mean, I was we were three percent off, which is, yeah. I mean, the most we were off by anything. I was off by anything. So yeah, it was my worst prediction. Yours almost tied for yours worst prediction, but yeah, it was still still in striking distance. Absolutely. 3% is nothing to sneeze at in this kind of uh, numbers that we're dealing with here. Worth noting that that 6% is, it was actually 5.85%. That's 22 players. Right. So you and I were expecting another, say, 10 players to play Eldrazi. Right. It's not a It's not a huge gap. And we expect them to be more budget players. Yep. Yep. So next up, we're getting down into the, the small numbers here, of course. The next most numerous category was Grixis slash Big Blue. Right. You and I both predicted 3%. The actual was 4.8. But I have a feeling that Ryan and Matt put a few more decks in here than maybe you and I would normally agree. Um, list. For one thing, they don't separate out land still. No, they where do. We do. They do. Let, do they? Yeah, these aren't blue control decks. These are, but the, but I think but I think your point is true. Land still is separate okay. out. But I think the point is that there this. In, probably is one of the biggest categories of decks in that it encompasses basically anything that's like a a, a high artifact mana drain deck yeah. uh that, yeah. that you know so it includes like the the grixis thieves deck that made top eight to you know like the subterranean tremors jace decks mm-hmm. to you know it's like yeah it's all the in, jason tezzeret decks yes exactly they, certain they're fairy decks that, are that aren't xerox yeah and non-xerox yeah. yep in some ways, it's a yeah, catch-all so, de- catch-all category. <laughs> it really is, and it overlaps with other in, in in a meaningful way. I think contextually, so we don't put too much stock in it. Although, you know, I'm on record as saying there's almost always five percent of Grixis or whatever yes. every year, and I only predicted three this right. year for some right. reason. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> even there was five percent again. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a reminder that when players play in this event, they like to play the Weissman type decks. You know, those yeah. are the players who don't want to come with the Johnny Come Lately paradoxical, or the they they don't like the Xerox decks. They just like playing these kinds of decks, and and this is the event for them to play it in. Yeah, and also, I mean, we talked earlier shows how Grixis Thieves decks did decently at the beginning of the year on the Vintage Challenges. So it's not like they've been completely unviable. They just haven't appeared yeah. a lot lately. Yeah, absolutely. So the next thing that, I mean, we're getting down into tiny, tiny differences here, but the next thing I want to call out is the big new uh, player on the scene for this Vintage Champs, and that was Survival. You and I knew about it going in because it had won Asia Vintage Champs and we'd seen it cropping up online. We discussed beforehand how we thought it was going to be very relatively light representation due to a number of factors. It is the most expensive deck in Vintage. It is exceedingly (laughs) complicated to play. 
it is very new and well those things combined plus a few other factors means i predicted two percent you predicted three the actual was a little surprisingly four percent which that equals is 15 players i thought it was are you sure i think it's more than 15 players four percent is well, more than 15 players it's right here in their document 15 3.99 okay never mind <laughs> yeah i mean i i think that um I think that well, one percent is three point seven six. Yeah, players. you're right. No, you're right. Um, <laughs> Fifteen. I think the thing about this deck is it had when I did the vintage challenge analysis a couple a couple of weeks before the tournament. Survival had one of the best win percentages as it did in this event, and so it was it was a deck that was really hot and fun, and it's hard to make predictions when you're talking about small numbers like that. So obviously, we were only one yeah. percent off. But um, yeah. but I was I guess I was cl- a lot closer than you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You were you were fifty percent closer than I. Was. <laughs> so the interesting thing about survival, among many interesting things, but in my eyes, is that th- there was only fifteen players apparently on the archetype. But I legitimately saw three to four different builds of the deck, right? Just in my small scope of experience, right? And one of them made top eight. Which is, I mean, that's a really big story for this event is the emergence of a quote unquote new deck. And it's especially interesting to me when you take into account the notion that this survival archetype could have existed last year. There is no new printing that has enabled this deck. It's a bizarre survival hollow one deck with other disruptive factors such as Thalia, Null Rod, Stony Silence, Force of Will, depending on your build, Ancient Grudge, that kind of thing. There's actually no new cards that created this deck within the last year, which I find fascinating. A lot of people lament the fact that Vintage is so rock, paper, scissors right now, or it's so polarizing, when here, a brand new deck that is just apparently newly developed, not newly printed, has shown up onto the scene, done very well, won the Age of Vintage Champs, and made top eight here in North America. I think that's a testament to how (laughs) <laughs> a lot of people who are down on the format should maybe reconsider their position and embrace the fact that there is still room for exploration in this format without new printings. Well, I mean, I, I've been on record saying that, in my opinion, the survival deck is is the re- rebirth of the reemergence of the Lestray deck. And if you mm-hmm. look back in the format's history, you can find lots of decks that are like this. Like Oshawa Stompy used Null yep. Rods instead of Stony Silence, and it had Bazaars and... and, and and basking rootwalla, you know, and and there have been plenty of decks that use squee and so on and so forth. Um, so it's what is instead of arrogant worm, of course you get hollow one and and uh, <laughs> vengevine. Um, right, right. I my view is that it is exciting, it is fun, it is skill intensive, and it's clearly a, a, a good a good deck to play. Um, so I don't know yeah. if I call it new, but I would say it's it's a a, a reemergence of an old concept. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would agree with you that it is that and it is also new in the sense that it is re-energized by the combination of Hollow One and Vengevine, but it's using, as you said, all the other old tricks, right? Yeah. Bizarre, Survival, Rootwalla, Squee, none of that stuff's news. So yeah. I love it. I think it's I think Me it's too. in a fantastic place. And I also think it's fantastic in that it's still being explored by the community as a whole. Andy Probosco, kind of famously, if you're the sort of person who follows the Mana Drain or Andy's exploits, he was returning to the States, I think, from Europe. I'm not 100% on whether or not he was coming directly from Europe. He had a snafu with his travels, was not able to go home and get his cards on the way wow. to this event. 
So he had to not only find cards to, to borrow from the community, which is, the, you know, the, the vintage community is great for this kind of thing. But he also had to kind of, he, he chose to, I guess, he could have just pulled a list offline and said, please build me this. But he kind of crowdsourced what deck he should play among his friends and the community. And he was directed towards survival, at which point I heard he went to kind of the, the Bant version that had won Asian vintage champs and, and um, looked at other things that maybe recent developments in that place. But then he went to the Manadrain and joined the discussion, the active discussion on this archetype there and learned that the community had evolved the deck and had come up with a, a more current version, so to speak, that people were very high on. And it replaced things. It eschewed, I think, the white for red in favor of main deck ancient grudges which obviously have great synergy with the way the deck is built yeah, and the way course. it plays. And he, so he put together this revised, hot-off-the-presses version of Survival, and his first game with it was round one <laughs> of the tournament. <laughs> which, and, he won, and he had, a, he had a, a feature match, which he won. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I just, I, I love that kind of story because it speaks to so many intersecting things about the, the format and the community and the excitement that is vintage and Eternal Magic in general. But I, I just really like how fresh this deck is in general. Hmm. So that brings us to the end of our predictions, really. There are well, a couple of other categories. Why don't you that run those off? Because some of those two, are... 2 to 3%. Yeah, so, Steve, uh, do, well, um, uh, I can do, do Matt it. and Ryan... I can do it. No, can do oh, it. yeah, well, go ahead. Sure. So one of the things that we actually predicted that there would be a lot of was the Bug or Bug R decks, Leovold decks. Yes. And I... It's it's hard to know exactly because I don't know if they pulled that out per se, but when you predicted 8% and I predicted less than that 7%, the actual, yeah. according to, to this breakdown, is 3%, which was much lower than we expected. So that might have actually been our yeah. biggest whiff. Um, I, I guess I was on the under, so I get the win. Um, yes, I was very much interested in the motivating effects that Assassin's Trophy exactly. would have. I, I, I just expected a lot of people yes. to to be energized by that card in particular, and it turns out they simply were not. Well, the vintage challenge that I analyzed, you might recall, um, there were two in the top eight and one, I think, like in second place with Assassin's Trophy. Um, mm-hmm. It was one of the best performing decks. Um, and then Landstill, we both predicted 4%. The actual was 4%. So I don't yep. know how far off I was in terms of actuals. But I don't think there was anything besides bug. I was more than three percent off, and most of mine I was off by one percent or one and a half, two percent at most. Yeah, yeah, good predictions by you this year, and as a whole, I think we did very well. Agreed. It was there are some definitely challenging dynamics to predicting this year, which may or may not exist in future years. The presence of a, well, a breakout new deck like Survival. And then the upswing in paradoxical outcome, yeah. as well as the dynamicism generated and demonstrated by Dredge in the the, the months leading up to the event, all of those compact uh, confounding factors made it pretty challenging. But I think that part of what this all illustrates is that this the, this exercise illustrates is that triangulating the data points that we looked at is really the right approach. And then making the adjustments mm-hmm. for paper vintage is also the right approach. That is, we expected more than normal Eldrazi. There was. It wasn't as much as we expected, but certainly 6% is more than normally shows up you know, in a, right. in a vintage tournament. Um, we expect there to be more Oath than normal, because there always is, and there was. Um, you know, We expected... Uh, the, the Dark Ritual decks, you predicted 2%, I predicted 3 It was 37 So again, we were right in range there. Um, yep. you know, but a little bit more than you see in, in, in 
there people in paper like dark rituals more than people online do. So so <laughs> there's just that. So there's little adjustments that you make and you get pretty pretty darn close. Yep, agreed. And it's always a fun exercise. I love it. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about our tournament results and then we can go to the the, the, the top decks. So, Kevin, why don't we begin by you sharing what you played, why you decided to play that, and and tell us a little bit about your deck. Absolutely. So, I played Grixis Xerox. It's a deck that is a, it's a descendant from the decks that I played in the VSL, the 1BR decks, which were also effectively Grixis Xerox decks, but have gone through many iterations. And the the theory behind the deck is that I feel that Deathrite Shaman shores up several issues with uh, mana bases in general and lets you play a little bit more greedy on spells, which is how that the one BR deck kind of came to be, playing several three mana spells in Vintage that where most people wouldn't even think to. And it evolved over time. I find that I like Tassiger the Golden Fang as a, a very efficient card, a la the Grixis and, and Blue Black decks in Modern and Legacy these days. It's just a very efficient threat that can be a card advantage engine if the game goes long enough. And I really like Demonic Tutor still because it lets you do certain things vis-a-vis your silver bullets. Like I played main deck Shattering Spree for this event. And it lets you... Which is awesome. Yeah, it lets you do certain things like tutor up Strip Mine uh, in, in Control Mirrors when your opponent has Library and things like that. So that's the deck I had been developing. The biggest problem with the deck conceptually is Oath of Druid. As you know, right. Grixis, the color combination, has no good answer to the card Oath of Druid. The, the solution that I stumbled upon during the VSL last year, or actually two years ago now almost, um, was Anul. Anul is the sort of card that if you're lucky, you can catch an Oath on the stack, and it's not completely dead against other things like workshops. So I, I'm banked on some Anuls in my sideboard for the Oath matchup, but I also concluded that the Oath is the kind of deck where you can you can you can just outvintage them if you're a good, powerful, vintage, controlish deck. And I was able to win in testing a number of matches against Oath just with that strategy. And so I just kind of gave up for, for any greater degree on the Oath matchup. The thing that happened leading up to this event, which really cemented this deck for me, was the printing of Niv-Mizzet Parun. Now, we reviewed this card. And for those who aren't following along, this is the, the new version of Niv-Mizzet that costs UUURRR. And we d- reviewed it and talked about how completely ridiculous it is once you get it in play, but casting right. it is a serious challenge. And we talked about that effect in their set review. And I actually predicted no copies of yeah, Niv-Mizzet. Yeah, I, I was the eight. over on that. <laughs> yeah, you are. And you, but you properly identified that it's a reasonable card in Oath, certain Oath builds, and it was definitely played in multiple Oath lists at Champ. However, I tested with Niv, and the first time I cast that card and realized that it was going to resolve, for one... <laughs> And then that anything my opponent, yeah, anything that my opponent did to try to remove it was at least going to draw me a card, thereby replacing itself. But if I had any kind of interaction at that point, misstep or force of will, I just got this cascade of card advantage, and it was completely untenable for my opponent. And so I started testing and kept testing, and and just loved this Niv Mizzet business. And so, and it fit with my theme of fixing my mana with Deathrite Shaman. Like this is the sort of deck that can cast Niv off of off of only five lands, which which works really well, less if I've got my Sapphire and my Ruby. 
and I found little synergies here and there. I found that Demonic Tutor got way better in the deck, because if I drew Niv-Mizzet early in the game, I could DT for Lotus, and mm. almost universally play Niv-Mizzet the next turn, yeah. I mean, yeah. all things being equal. Conversely, if I drew Black Lotus, I found that there are many situations where I could DT Tutor for Niv, for, and it was the right thing to yeah. do. I also found that the Planeswalkers in the deck, all of which became just far better with Niv-Mizzet in play, Dak Faden and Jace the Mind Sculptor are ridiculous with Niv-Mizzet in play. They become damage engines and control engines, unlike they you've ever seen. And then I stumbled upon the linchpin, which was Chandra Torch of Defiance. I got blown out by Chandra in a local tournament by my friend Jeremy uh, because he played her on the first turn, and she's real hard to interact with in a deck that's trying to control the board. But it wasn't just that. I realized that I was looking for cards in my deck that had different synergies and would perform multiple roles in multiple matchups, and then I realized that this deck uses every part of Chandra Torch of Defiance. You can plus her for card advantage when you're in a grindy kind of matchup and just trying to get card advantage, which makes her uh, makes a clock toward her ultimate, which she gets too fast and is game-ending. You can minus her against the, the creature decks in the format, your shops, your fish, your uh, Eldrazi, and she's very good at removing a creature shy of um, Reality Smasher, but she kills a Thought Not Seer and she kills a Hollow One, which is both strong use cases. Right. And then the cincher was the fact that she produces, for a plus ability, she produces red, red, which means if I play her with four mana, like land, 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 mox, which is totally reasonable in this deck, I am immediately at Niv-Mizzet mana on the next turn with her plus ability. So all of those things being equal, I fell in love with this deck. I I tweaked a number of things, and there's certainly plenty of ways to to build it. I played two Mystic Remoras because I wanted to... um, have just that little bit of advantage against the paradoxical outcome decks. And I also played two main deck shattering sprees, which I think are just fantastic in the metagame right now at disrupting paradoxical outcome and just being main deck ways to buy back tempo and time against shop. So those are the salient features of the deck. I ended up playing two deck, one Jace, one Chandra, Niv-Mizzet, three Snapcaster Mages, which is something to be debated, especially vis-a-vis Jace Vryn's Prodigy, uh, one Tassiger, and two Deathrite Shamans. And then my removal package is Planeswalkers plus Niv plus Lightning Bolts in the main plus Shattering Spree. So I love the deck. It was it felt great. And all things I'm skipping ahead to the the punchline here, but all things told, I went ten and four on the weekend with it, which feels like a good like a strong GP performance in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Don't, I mean, so I know people are listening, trying to just envision this deck. Can, can you round out just the rest of the deck and then for us or just run through the list and then so sure the I, the creature base i listed there are two mr grimoires two decks jason chandra which i listed there's a kind of a cantrip package of one knight's whisper three preordains now that's arguable but i like i like access to knight's whisper because it's uh hard to disrupt card advantage in again the xerox mirrors and against other control decks which i really enjoy the usual suspects of Xerox restricted cards, all the cantrips, the two delve spells, gush, walk ancestral, that kind of thing, plus the demonic tutor, which I mentioned. Then in terms of interaction, two bolts and two sprees, four force, four misstep, and two pyroblast. I have access to going up to four pyroblast post board, again, in the blue matchups, which I also really enjoy, especially with snapcaster mages times three. And then on color moxin plus lotus, library and strip, Six fetches, three of each dual land, sea and volcanic, plus basic island, basic mountain in the main. So I did up the the red mana count as compared to perhaps past lists in the Xerox category by including three volks plus a mountain in the main. 
Obviously, there are some four volcanic decks out there, and this one is a candidate for that. But I didn't find that on average I was having any kind of problem with that. Individual games where I just draw two Cs, yeah, that can be tricky, but Deathrite Shaman also helps to shore that up a little bit. Then in the sideboard, four Ley Lines, two Ravenous Trap, two Shattering Spree, that brings me up to four, two Pyroblast, that brings me up to four, Pithing Needle as a role player, aforementioned Annul times two, a Flusterstorm, and one Engineered Explosives as a bit of a catch-all, especially for things I may not have predicted and, and strange matchups in the event. It has cards that you have long loved. That's right. This is so Steve, you and I talked about, I think did I don't know if we talked about it on our last show or not exactly, or maybe if it was just you and I offline, but one of the things I was embracing going into this event was having a deck I was comfortable with. So it's not necessarily a world beater. It's not uh the the next new hotness in the metagame or anything, but it is filled with things I am both comfortable with and really enjoy playing. And the combination of those factors meant I enjoyed myself even though I did not win Vintage Champions this year. <laughs> Would you like to... Why don't you tell us about your um, Vintage Championship matchups, the matches? Yeah, absolutely. So I had a buy in round one. Round two, I played against Survival, which I defeated 2-0. This, was, this featured one of the most ridiculous games of the day, and I think it was actually game one. It must have been game one. So incredibly satisfying. My opponent... Um, we shuffle up and we both keep seven and my opponent plays Bazaar of Baghdad. And I thought, okay, I'm just, I'm all already, I'm picturing my sideboard, right? What am I going to do in this next yeah, game? <laughs> I know the feeling. Yep. <laughs> right, right. My opponent activates Bazaar of Baghdad. And I'm like, all right, how, how bad is it going to be? They discarded, and I quote, Tropical Island, <laughs> Ancient Grudge, and Windswept Heat. And I thought, and in my mind, I'm rubbing my hands together like, oh, I get to play some magic this, this game. Then they go hollow one, and I thought, okay, that was to be expected in this context. I know they're on the survival deck. I said, I didn't have force of will. I said, okay. Then they go hollow one, and I thought, oh, maybe I don't get to play magic this game. Then they go mox mox chalice on one. Mm. Now, mm. just for reference, this is turn one, bizarre double hollow one, chalice right. on one, and I thought I was dead, right? So I calmly, I, I had played first, and I had played a preordain, by the way. So I have a one land in play. That's key. So I calmly play my second land and cast Time Walk, which I was holding in my opening seven. Opponent has no cards in hand at this point. I calmly play my third land and play Dak Faden, taking one of their hollow ones. Reminder, they had discarded Ancient Grudge. So they play a land. I think they fetch out a green source, grudge my hollow one that I stole from them, and their hollow one attacks my deck. So once again, I am I have no I have no three mana, nothing in play. They have hollow one, chalice on one. I calmly play my fourth mana source and play Chandra Torch of Defiance. Destroy your hollow one. They play second land in Thalia. They must have had one card in hand after turn one. I haven't done the math right. But anyway, they play another land and play Thalia. I look at my hand and smile. Calmly untap, plus that Chandra for red red and cast Niv-Mizzet Parood. Oh my god. Living the dream, Kevin. Exactly. Just like we drew it up. That was preordained time walk, Dak Fade, and Chandra Niv was the, was the first sequence of my first game of this tournament. And that 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 Thalia was not long for this world once uh, once Niv Mizzet was in play. That was a really satisfying opening to the tournament. My opponent, I think, mulled to four in the next game oh, and, and basically was not interactive. That was my first experience playing against survival in this tournament, which is polar opposite from one to come later. So I'm, one, I'm two and zero oh at this point having won one round of magic. Uh, round three, I play against Shops, and I lose. But it was very close and involved a mulligan on my part, and one one of the, what I consider, possibly the most interesting choices I had on the day, because I had main deck Shattering Spree, I actually had a lot of game, so to speak, in game one against Shops, 
but I had to mull to five in this game one to find a keepable hand. I, mean, I didn't know what this person was on either. I just wow. had to mull to five to get, to get a keepable hand. But it had Black Lotus and Shattering Spree. And I didn't know what they were on, but I thought this Black Lotus Spree is at least going to buy me back some tempo against uh, multiple decks in the format. It's probably okay. Sure enough, he starts playing out shop stuff. And on the third turn, I have Black Lotus Shattering Spree to kill four of his threats. (laughs) Straight up four for two. I was going to say four for one. That's not right. It's a four for two. I had a Volcanic Island Black Lotus kill four creatures. On his next turn, he plays a Mistress Factory and plays Chalice on one. And I never recovered that game. Oh my god! <laughs> I was I was at like fifteen life or something when this happened. Maybe because he had <sighs> beat me down a little bit, had a huge army. If and only he had played that earlier. <laughs> I know, right? So it was pretty bittersweet that I had Mulligan to five and climbed just, out. Yeah, and then, and climbed out given yeah. my technology of main deck shattering spree with the help of Black Lotus, of course, and it just wasn't good enough. The next game was really agonizing. Because I drew Double Shattering Spree. I had Deathrite Shaman. I think I had all this jazz. But he had one of those kind of workshop draws whereby it's kind of like if you draw one of every different card in the workshop deck, it is incredibly hard to defeat, right? Yeah. <laughs> so his draw was Inspector, Double Ravager, Hangerback Ballista, a Workshop, a Jet, <laughs> and Double Wasteland. That's what I had God. to face that game. See, so doubles and, of the good stuff. And right. Then- and so it was one of those things that if he hadn't had the second Wasteland, I would have been okay. But I was activating Deathrite Shamans to get red and taking Wastelands out of his graveyard and shattering spree two things at a time, which is not exactly where you want to be. Uh, if he hadn't had the second Wasteland, my second shattering spree would have been for three, and I probably would have uh, drawn out. But hey, that's why that's why we play the games, right? It was very close. And I think my deck still acquitted itself quite nicely on the Mulda 5 in game one. So anyway, I'm 2-1 at this point. I play against Nathan, the top eight competitor from SCG Con on Grixis Thieves. And I recognized him, and I knew what he had played at SCG Con, so I kept a hand that was good against Thieves. And sure enough, it was good against Thieves. <laughs> and and my deck goes up to four Pyroblasts. <laughs> you just did the okie to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I win this matchup, and I would expect to win that matchup. He can outbroken me because he had things like Key Vault and Tinker and other things, but I have four Pyroblast post-board, and he is on mana drains. It's, it's, not a, it's not a fair fight, really. Also, Pyroblast doubling is straight, you know, straight destruction for an existing uh, Notion Thief is just heavily advantage. So I win that round. Next round, I play against Josh McClure on Shops. Very nice match against Josh. Won this one 2-1. to one. In good old-fashioned um, close matches or close games each time, but the foreshadowing spree technology just really put yeah. me over the top here. So you're 4-1 right now, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Next round is where the wheels kind of fell off. I played against Kyle on Paradoxical Outcome, and this was the Kyle from the top eight of the event. So he did well all day today, or that day. Uh, he, wins, he wins game one, and I don't have any notes on this. I, I really couldn't tell you what happens in game one, but I can tell you that game two was just a dagger. This is where the, this is where the wheels fell off for me motivationally for this tournament. So I keep a hand that has two lands, Mystic Remora and Gitaxian Probe. One of the tensions with my deck with Mystic Remora is that I can play it on turn one and support it for several turns, theoretically. My deck doesn't provide pressure because I'm, I'm a control deck, right? Yeah. So I'm not incentivizing my opponent to act. Right. And one of the things that came out in testing was that it was better for me if I actually let a couple of turns go by and played Remora or in ways where I could still pressure them. If I yeah. two mana plus the Remora, I can play a Snapcaster Mage, that kind of thing. But... Having access, I'm on the play versus outcome, which is the ideal use case for Remora, and I have this Cataxian probe, so I was ecstatic. I probed him, and, and I was pro- even more and Pio ecstatic. Pio doesn't usually have a lot of misstep either. 
That's so. correct. I probed him, and I was even more ecstatic. Let me read you his hand of seven. His two lands are Tundra and Telerian Academy. That's Perfect. always dangerous, though. Perfect for Gataxian Pro. Sure. He has Mox Emerald. That's his mana. He has Merchant Scroll, Preordain, Flusterstorm, and Time Vault. One more time. Merchant Scroll, Merchant Scroll Preordain, Preordain, Flusterstorm, and Time Vault? Time Vault, yes. With Tundra Academy Emerald. I would definitely play Mystic Remora on turn one. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. This is a textbook kind of hand where even though my deck can't pressure you, his deck, the way it's structured, and this he hand, has to, he, has he has to, to play act. either the Mox or the Preordain. Exactly. So, he has to yeah. give me at least one or two cards off of it, right? So I'm ecstatic. I, and I know he can't interact with this Mystic Remora basically at all, given this hand. So I play it. I'm feeling great. I have Remember, I have two lands. I draw into um, something that's not a land. I don't remember what it was. Force of Will, maybe. So he draws and plays Scalding Tarn. Ugh. And I thought, all right. I mean, that was going to happen, right? He's going to draw some more lands. It's not, it's not the, the end of the world. I pay my one for Remora, draw a non-land, play my second and only remaining mana source, and say go. He draws and plays Library of Alexandria. Oh, my God. <laughs> Worst possible. Yeah. <laughs> I pay my two mana for Mystic Remora, don't draw a third mana source, and proceed to get completely wrecked by his Library of Alexandria. So that's that was when the wheels fell off on my top eight run, effectively. Jeez. And I was I was completely daggered at that point. I thought, oh, I, I have tested this matchup. I know the role of this card. This is a perfect scenario, but you can't beat the top of your opponent's deck sometimes so then i'm i'm x2 at that point the next round i play against paradoxical outcome again in the hands of jeremy beaver and i win two to one in a very long drawn out match where the craziest things happen he goes for forever in game three without drawing a land it is it is it was unbelievable um i had an embarrassment of riches that match in game what two was he and playing three, but it, you said paradoxical outcome okay. he was on esper outcome yeah so i was at this point i think five and two um Next round, I played against two-card Monty in the hands of Bob, and I, I defeated him 2-0. Um, I have a great tournament record against two-card Monty for two reasons. One is I play against two-card Monty more than the average human does, given where I live and who I consort with. And the other reason is I tend to build decks that are just really good against Monty, and I know how to sideboard against them. I know that the things that you like you don't take out your missteps against them, that kind of thing. So I, I felt very confident in this match, and, and the result demonstrated that. The penultimate round of the tournament, round nine, I'm still X and two at this point, still live for prize, and I get paired against Vasu on survival. This was also agonizing. So game one, he goes basic forest deathrite shaman, and I thought, okay, I'm playing against Bug probably, right? Sure enough. He goes next turn, fetch out a land, play Leovold. I did not have wow. Pyroblaster Force of Will. So I untap, lightning bolt his Leovold, and he missteps my bolt, and the game basically ends at that point. I mean, I can't beat And you Leovold. haven't seen the rest of his deck? Yeah. 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 So that was game one. Deathrite Shaman into Leovold, and note that he misstepped my bolt. Right. Game two. So, so you goes, scooped, or did he actually just kill you with the Leovold? Oh, no, we, we played for a couple more turns. I just couldn't dig out of the line. My hand he didn't was like reveal any of the survival parts. Yeah, right. my hand was like Night's Whisper and, and Preordains and stuff that didn't interact with Leovold. He just ran me over. Um, I think he may have played a maybe a Manglehorn on a Mox or something, <laughs> something that was consistent with Bug still. So we sideboard. Game two, he goes, I, I think I probably played Land Preordain. I don't know what I did on turn one, but it was inconsequential. He goes, Bizarre Double Hollow one. Oh. <laughs> oh. So I look at what has gone on between games one and two, and I thought, oh, 
okay, did you did I switch opponents or something? <laughs> anyway, I I calmly proceed to play my. I, I know what it was. I played a Deathrite Shaman. That's how. That's what it was because I played turn two Dak Fade. I thought, hey, double hollow one. Yeah. I've, I've got the answer to this. I'll Take play this Dak Fade. He plays Force of Will. Oh God! Out of his survival deck, Jesus. he plays Force of Will on my Dak Fade. Next turn, he beats me for eight and plays Time Walk and beats me for eight again, and I only had one more turn in that match. So when I talk about how excited and interested that I am in survival, this is part of my impression yeah, of the deck. Because yeah. I played the, against the the bug Force of Will misstep version, which completely Jesus, wrecked me. Jesus, that sounds terrifying, actually. <laughs> Doesn't it? It really is. And if he, you get the kind of draws that he got, on average, the deck is nigh unbeatable, I would say. It's, it's yeah. incredibly good. So anyway, that was disheartening and surprising in all manner of it, things. It also illustrates the asymmetric informational advantages of playing new decks, surprise decks. Definitely. I mean, Absolutely. he really leveraged that against you in a big way. Absolutely. The last round is almost a, a I mean, I went out with a with a whimper instead of a bang. I got paired against my friend Mike Tabler. He was on shops. My average starting hand size this match was five. In both games, both games, I start with five, and he had turn one Inspector Trinosphere. Oh God! <laughs> How off Lotus? Lo- uh, okay. In so fact, it wasn't, in, it wasn't in fact, in game two, crypt- no. In fact, in game two, he had um, a Mox and another creature too, like a Ravager too. Good God! Yeah, and I started on five both games. Um, so I just didn't get to participate really in that match. So that's how my tournament ended with two very kind of alarming and surprising losses. One of which I'm, I mean, I'm used to losing to shops. That's the kind of thing that happens when you play a deck with four missteps in it and whatnot. But the loss to survival after my... Remember how my tournament started with round one completely decimating a shops player who had bizarre double hollow one? Well, you had a buy. You mean round two. I, mean, I know. My first round that I played started with completely decimating bizarre into double hollow one. And then in the penultimate round, getting completely blown out by bizarre double hollow one backed by force of will. So it was a it was a tournament of extremes for me and some disheartening things, but that's you know that's magic. You got that's why we play the games. But all in all, for the weekend, I felt my deck acquitted itself very well. I didn't notate how many times I resolved Niv Mizzet, but it was at least once in the trial and at least twice during the main. And every time I did, uh, I won those games. I mean, it's kind of yeah. hard not to win. In wow. fact, there was one game in the trial where my opponent I started my turn with only mana sources in play my opponent had jace the mind sculptor and i flipped uh delver and an, Elver, uh, an insectile aberration i played i played niv mizzet and then treasure cruise and destroyed both of his permanents with niv mizzet it was really satisfying well it sounds like the deck was both stylistically right up your alley as well as you know the the patterns of play you enjoyed absolutely um, all of the above would you have done anything differently and what ultimately did you think about that kind of deck in a tournament of 10 rounds? Um, I would, I think if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't play Mystic Remora. I know, it, and I'm not being results oriented with that one game where my opponent just kind of drew ideally out of it. But I just think that for the reasons I stated, my deck can't put pressure on you and force you to play into it, unlike other Mystic Remora decks in the past, or unlike the current outcome, recent outcome decks that play Remora and then push the action by playing outcome under upkeep, that kind of thing. My deck just doesn't have any of that. So I just feel like I didn't build the best Remora deck, and I kind of played it out of fear for outcome. I think I would play the deck again with the fourth Preordain and maybe a second Knight's Whisper in those slots. I think all the other structural choices that I made, like two main deck Shattering Sprees, that served me very well. 
And I was very comfortable yeah. with the creatures and the planeswalkers. And I, I'm a big fan of Niv Mizzet. I'm going to keep casting that card for RRR UUU for a while. <laughs> Fair so enough. So, in general, feel very good about it. Like I said, I was 10 and 4 on the weekend, and that's excluding my buy. So, I feel good about that. I think that's a, a decent GP style performance. That would have been some money in certain GPs, I think. Great. Well, that How sounds like an exciting, yeah, eternal weekend vintage performance. Yeah, agreed. By the way, that's two years in a row when I've been six and two going into round nine and then <laughs> and then ended up six and four. Last year was a little different. I had a draw and I scooped to my opponent then, so because I got paired against the land still player who took his time. Uh this year was just two complete drubbings in the last rounds, which left me with a sour note, but still yeah, it's yeah. okay. <clears throat> so how about you? You selected Jess Guy, and I know that you put a lot of energy into positioning and developing <laughs> that deck in the in the preceding month. Well, there's always this fundamental baseline question about deck selection. Do you play a deck that you're most comfortable and familiar with and expert in, or do you play the deck that you think is actually just the statistical best deck in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. always best when those two things line up, Mm -hmm. but they they don't always do. Um, And in a format as oscillating and volatile as the format is the format we're playing right now, it's hard to pin down a firm answer to the second question. I mean, if I were to ask you, you know, three weeks ago, what's the best deck in the vintage format? It's hard to actually give an answer. You could say, well, the probably most notorious deck is PO, but the deck with the highest win percentage is probably Shops, but that changes month to month, if not week to week. So it's, you know, it's really hard to, to know. I, I've had really good success with with the Just Guy Mentor deck the last two years. In the last two big paper tournaments, I finished, I was top 16 at SCG Con. I would have date I would have top eighted if it had been a day one tournament because I was in the mm-hmm. top eight and I I was in a win and in in my last round and the in in NYSE last year I obviously was made it to the finals with the deck so I've got a lot of experience not to mention I wrote a whole book uh, <laughs> understanding gush on this archetype so there's a lot of baked in experience that I don't have with other decks isn't to say I couldn't play PO I mean I I think I rattled off like a was it four and with PO in the VSL Kevin. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel real, and I played P. I played PO two years ago in this yep. event. Who we both did. I persuaded you to take that route with me right after Kaladesh. Right. So I could have played PO, but at the end of the day, I actually feel like this is just the best deck in the format, and I'll explain why. Number one, I am. You never lose to PO. My record on Magic <laughs> Online against PO with this deck is something like I'm going to just ballpark. I think it's probably like 21, 24 and one. <laughs> in the last in the last three months, uh, in vintage leagues with with my Just Guy deck, and it's just an absurdly high win percentage. Um, that's number one. Part of the reason for that is because it's very hard for PO to beat a bunch of pyroblasts. I have four post board and mm-hmm. Dak Faden times three, which I've been running since SCG Con, if not earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I've been running multiple main back fragmentized, two fragmentized, much like you run two Shatsbury. Mm-hmm. I, I posted this on Twitter, but my opinion of the format right now is that Disenchant has never been better. Probably not since 1994 has it been this good <laughs> in the format. I mean, if you just think about it, it. It's great against Shops. It's great against Survival. It's great against Oath. And it's great against PO. A Disenchant effect against PO is more than just a one-for-one. One. If you Disenchant their mocks, you're basically taking away the card advantage they get with PO as well. Mm-hmm. So the only card I fear against PO, really the only card I'm afraid of, is Yawgmoth's Will. And for some strange region, reason, like half the PO decks don't even have Yogmas Will. So it's like, <laughs> I, I, I just don't lose to PO. Really, just do not lose to them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it's, this is, I think, the best deck against PO, if not one of the best decks. Certainly Xerox, I think, is probably the best against PO. Um, I think my deck is probably better than Rug because because I think, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think Nature's Claim is really good against PO because you can respond to PO with Nature's Claim. But um, it's, you know, it's six of one, half dozen of the other, right? Yeah. Um, I also, there's a lot, lot of other design things to mention um, that I haven't really talked about before because I don't really talk a lot about this deck, <laughs> you know, publicly. <laughs> it's just mostly my own work. Um, yeah. Since NYSE, I've been running the mana base that has the three basics main deck, and I really prefer that with mm-hmm. the with the island, the plains, and the mountain. And I sideboard out the plains and the mountain in a ton of matchups rather than bring them in. A lot of the Xerox decks are two islands main deck. I really prefer the uh, this configuration. In the in the world where Gush is restricted, right? When Gush is unrestricted, I prefer the two. I prefer two islands main or one island main and and, and a basic in the side. Um, but uh, but but fragmentized main deck. The two fragmentizes main deck with all the plows and balance and deck also has just really finally swung and the basics has finally swung the shop matchup around. So I really just since SEG Con and even before that, I haven't been losing to shops basically at all. I go into the shops matchup knowing I'm a I'm I'm really well positioned. So it feels great to finally be good against shops. And I, <laughs> I beat Brian DeMars on shops in, in you know uh, in shop it, SEG Con and I, and all my other shops opponents at that event. And mm-hmm. I I never lose to shops on in the vintage challenges I play in. I played in a, three or four vintage challenges since April now, and I've gone four and two in all, and never lost to shops. <laughs> nice. this yeah in the, that time so um that's the that's the other piece um the other thing that i've been working so so one question you know obviously I, i'm all in on three DAC, and i think matt sperling made a really intriguing decision to go for DAC. he knew that he wanted to play a DAC deck yeah um but the question for me is white versus green right i mean i think for me what white gives is first of all plow is better than bolt except against planeswalkers but it's basically better right Mentor is the best win condition. Let's just be honest, bar none. <laughs> yep. Yep. It, you know, a, a monk token, in my opinion, is more is as valuable as a young pyromancer. <laughs> so, my, yep. My, um, fragmentize is is main deckable. You know, wear tear, but ancient grudge is overall better. Like I think overall, ancient grudge is better. But I like I love having the main deck fragmentize. It gives me more game against turn one o- game one oath. Yeah. Um, I think plow is as I said better than bolt. But the other white card that's super powerful, besides Fragmentize and Mentor, is Balance. Yeah. And that really, to me, is the card that I, I love the most. At SCG Con, in, in, after, in the aftermath of SCG Con, I began experimenting with different configurations of JVP and Snapcaster Mage. At, J, at SCG Con, I think I played four, four JVP, one Snapcaster, and I think the Balance was in the sideboard. And it may have been main deck, but la- but I love the configuration of four JVP one balance. Balance does a number of things that people just completely underestimate. Number one, <laughs> it's enormously powerful in the mirror because yep. your opponent can do all kinds of things, and they have very little that can actually stop a balance. You know, you can tell when they don't have a force. You can bleed them out, and if you have a flip JVP and a deck in play, and you balance, you- it doesn't matter what you're balancing. You're getting so much advantage. So what I like to do a lot is I like to just flip a JVP balance. If they counter it, then you just flash it back. And you have no cards in hand. They have no cards in their hand. You've got a JVP and maybe a DAC. You're going to win that game. Yep. Like it's That's very an incredibly, hard. incredibly favorable position at that point. Incredibly favorable. The other thing I love about balance is it's another strip mine against LOA. Like I can't tell you how many times online I, I played a game where 
my opponent has LOA on the draw or on the play, but let's say on the draw, and I just go turn two balance down to four, you know? <laughs> or, yeah. or they go turn one LOA, uh, LOA, I go, okay, I'll play turn one JVP, I'll flip the JVP, and then I'll balance. <laughs> and if they, if they force it, I'll just flash it right back, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. such an insane answer to LOA. Um, and it's, what's amazing about it is that you, if you don't need the balance because you're ahead, you just discard it to DAC or JVP, or it's the best come from behind card that you can possibly play. And for what the Xerox deck often has a low hand size, but good, good like board control in terms of like JVP and DAC, yep. and balance fits exceptionally well with that. So I probably wouldn't go Matt, Matt Sperling's route, even though I think Ancient Grudge is superior to any of the other cards I have, simply because I think Balance and Mentor are way more powerful than the cards he has. Um, and what I do think you make, with, what do you make though, of his uh, Spell Pierce technology, though? I think Spell Pierce is extremely, extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to that in a second. Um, sure. but, but let me first just finish the point about, um, about JVPs and, and Snaps. So um, after SEGCon, I, you know, Sully got ninth place and I was in the top 16. He got ninth place with four Snapcaster Majors. And he was so confident in that. And I actually <laughs> yep. felt that, that, like, it's weird. If your opponent in the Xerox mirror has a Snapcaster and you have a JVP, on some level you're advantaged because the JVP actually trumps a Snapcaster on board. You yep. keep plussing the JVP, the Snapcaster can't do anything. And then you can just kill them by ultimating JVP, or you you get like a big card advantage spell with JVP, like like you play two treasure crews or two dig or you know something like that, and you just pull ahead. Yep. But the one thing JVP did give me pause on is that JVP bolt is really good against my planeswalkers, and they can get two for one on me, and so I hated that. So I I wanted to experiment. So after SEG Con, I experimented with, as I said, at SEG Con I had four JVP, one Snapcaster. So I tried, I tried, these are all the configurations I tested extensively and challenges <laughs> are in leagues. I tried four JVP, one Snapcaster at SCG Con. Then I tried three Snap, two JVP, three JVP, two Snap, um, basically every configuration, right? I tried <laughs> like everything you could try. And I, I, I just was over and over again affirmed in my belief that JVP was just way better. Yeah. And, and what, so here's one of the reasons why. Number one, I believe that you have to run five Moxen. And I believe I've always run five Moxen since Monastery Mentor, or I should have. <laughs> I realized <laughs> at some point that I was making a mistake when I didn't, and then I started running it. <laughs> and, and part of the value with five Moxen is that obviously it helps you cast the Mentor. You need it to cast the Mentor. But the other reason is that it helps you cast DAC, and I have three DACs. It's like the old Trigon Predator technology. You want to get DAC down as quickly as possible. And the yeah. superfluous Moxon, you just pitch with DAC. But the other reason is that you want turn one JVP. JVP is a turn one play, and Snapcaster Mage is not. Mm-hmm. So my favorite play, it's like t- playing turn one Query and Dryad. You know, back in 2007, all you wanted to do with the Grow deck is you wanted to go Mox, Land, Dryad. Then turn two, Brainstorm, Duress, whatever. The same thing is true here. You want the ideal... Non-restricted card opening, and I'm putting non-restricted in quotations because it includes a mox, is, <laughs> is mox, land, JVP, misstep the, the pyroblaster plow or bolt. Yep. That's what you want because then you're going to flip it on turn two. You fetch, you play a preordain, you flip, you tick up, and then on third turn, you, you can flash back a preordain and play DAC or anything like that, and you're way ahead. Um, 
that's really what you want to be doing with this deck. And so you really want, there's a priority or an emphasis on turn one JVP. And so that's really, and then turn two DAC, and then you're really off, you're, you're really flying, you know? <laughs> like th- with DAC after turn one JVP, you just can certainly flip the JVP on turn two, even not just turn three. So that's really what you want to do. And so you need to run the, with Snapcaster Mage is not a turn one play. It's right. a, basically a three mana spell. <laughs> yep. So I really dislike Snapcaster Mage. I, I'm playing a kind of a tap out control deck, you know? Like, for example, if I'm playing against Shops, or I'm playing against Oath, I want to play, or even PO, I want to go turn one JVP, turn two, fragmentize, flashback fragmentize. Yeah. You know? That's what you want to be doing. <laughs> um, so Definitely. I, yeah, I, so I'm way more on that than Snapcaster Mage. I think Snapcaster Mage's only big advantage is, the annoying thing is the Bolt and Pyroblast is where it can be really effective. Yep. So I, I've tested all the configurations of JVP and Snapcaster Mage really intensively, I played, and basically the whole reason I ran Vintage Challenges in the weeks, in the months preceding uh, the tournament was to test different configurations of Snapcaster Mage and JVP under tournament condition. And I, at the end of the day, I felt really confident that I landed on the right configuration, which is four JVP, zero snap, and one balance. Now, the reason that I was really frustrated, there was one challenge I played in where I was running the, it might have been three snap JVP, two snap, or three snap, two JVP. And I had, you have, in that configuration, you really can't afford to run balance main deck because the Snapcaster mages just make the balance awkward. I had a game where I would have won had it been the fourth JVP because I would have been able to clear the whole board, but I never, I got in this awkward situation where I couldn't quite balance and I couldn't like quite get them to like, to, to like attack into my Snapcaster mage so I could kill the Snapcaster so I could, so I could play balance. You know what I mean? Right, right. So it was really just a screwy situation. And balance is so enormously powerful. It's great against Eldrazi. It's great. It's actually good against. Um, uh, it's situationally. I don't want to overstate it against shops. On the draw, it's so insane against shops. So if shops go like workshop inspector and then turn two play like two more creatures, then they'll probably have like two or three cards in their hand. And balance is really good. Mm-hmm. Balance is actually bad on the play though against shops. And right. so I, you know, it's, it's awkward. Um, and you don't want to play balance against shops where they've emptied their entire hand. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like not perfect, but it's really good against Eldrazi. It's really insane in the mirror match. It's not so good against PO, but it's but it can be really good against PO. I'll get to that in a second. Yeah. I've just been talking about my deck design. And, um, <laughs> well, and so talk about your tournament experience then. Well, just one one or two other things I just wanted to po- finish pointing out though. Um, okay. On Dredge, th- balance is also really good against survival. <laughs> really yeah. good against survival. Um, the, the one thing I never really quite figured out and haven't quite figured out in probably five years is how to perfectly (laughs) sideboard against dredge. And I always feel like I have it and I'm really never do, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like at one point I was like, I mean, I lost against dredge in the VSL and I had containment priest and cage, which has been my formula for years. Now I went rest in peace. I moved to rest in peace and cage and then kind of in the weeks leading up to ravenous trap and boy, ravenous trap was good. Yeah. against dredge i also put one tariff in the sideboard as a answer to um archon of valor's reach and carnage tyrant <laughs> because now, I can't you're, now act- you're speaking my language <laughs> yeah. because you can't the frustrating thing about dread about oath is that sometimes they'll play these creatures and then balance doesn't work because they'll give you a token mm-hmm. you know so tariff is the card that you really need for for oath but i didn't play against oath and i think it you know i never faced it so it wasn't really an issue and the oath decks that were there 
weren't really running a lot of Archon of Valor's Reach or in, in very few Carnage Tyrant. I didn't see that. But I did lose to a Carnage Tyrant at SCG Con, so I did I did want a tariff. Um, and you did play against Eldrazi, and your, your, their thought not seer had to take your yes, tariff. <laughs> yes, that's right. Tariff, tariff was decent enough. But after the tournament, I actually have been experimenting with Pyroclasm and Subterranean Tremors in that slot. Which mm-hmm. is interesting. Like pyroclasm may seem weak, but actually with JVP, pyroclasm flashback pyroclasm can basically that's four damage that can take out basically everything. The only thing it yeah. doesn't kill are some of the oath finishers and and reality smasher. <laughs> so yeah. I've been testing those in the sideboard. In in I played the post vintage champs vintage challenge. I I made I I uh, went four and two, and pyroclasm both pyroclasm and some terrain tremors were excellent. But well, I haven't decided which is better. Yeah, Pyroclasm teams up very well f- with Fragmentize and Plow against Shops, too, because then they can't go tall and they can't go wide, basically. Right, right. And yeah. just just to talk a little bit more about the PO matchup, so I, I'm really all... I actually bring in four Fragmentize against PO. And what happens is the PO players have two choices. They can either play their Moxin, and they often want to because they want to play things like Karn or Sensei's Divining Top. Or they can mm-hmm. hold back on them, which is fine with me, <laughs> because then I will just develop my my mana advantage and 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 card advantage and virtual card advantage with JVP Dak. And if they do play anything, then I'm just going to have a load of pyroblasts sitting there. Yep. It's it, what I typically find in this deck against PO is that they end up because I destroy their board, they end up having like a hand that's like force PO PO. <laughs> that's typically how that plays out. So just <laughs> turning to my matchup, as I alluded to earlier, my matches not getting the buy really put me in a bad spot because my first matchup was against an unpowered White Eldrazi. <laughs> and in Which game, is the textbook version of why you want to do get the buy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, the good news, the problem was game one went really, really long. He had Chalice at one. And I <laughs> it, was, it was a really awkward situation because I started playing the Chalice game. I'm not a fan of play knowingly playing cards into a chalice for one. I know a lot of players like to do that. I it feels dirty to me. I don't yeah. like it. Um, <laughs> I really wish. I really strongly prefer prefer the the floor rules arrangements where both players are responsible for those cards. I hate the optional trigger thing. Gotcha. But at some point, I just thought I would try it. And he there was a snafu where he said a card resolves, and then the judge allowed him to take it back. Because he basically he goes, I played a plow, and he goes, it resolves. Oh wait, that's basically the the timing. Anyway, yeah. long story short, long story short, <laughs> I ah, long story short, um, I actually got a draw because what happened was balance won me. I got crushed in game two, but I eventually clawed back in game one with mentor and balance and JVPs. In game three, I was way ahead with I had like multiple JVPs had done multiple things with balances, but I wasn't able to actually get the game win because. I just couldn't get tick up. I couldn't tick up the JVP fast enough, and I couldn't find mentor. So we got a draw. And yeah, it's one of the things that you didn't specifically address in your discussion about JVP is that it is an excellent win condition, but it can be slow, especially if you've used it once. Which is another yeah. reason to have four, because what you want to do is you want to you want to get a fresh one to start ticking <laughs> when you have complete control to start ticking up. Right. It's right. only five turns, which is Drago, 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 Drago. But, but against <laughs> but against Eldrazi, one of the problems against White Eldrazi, especially unpowered White Eldrazi, is that deck has no card draw, so it has a full deck. So even when you <laughs> flip, even when you ultimate Baby Jace, you still have to play like ten spells. You know? <laughs> yeah. So that's I a good just point. I was gonna win, but I ran out of time. 
So yeah. it was a draw. Round two, I play, played against a guy playing keeper, basically, and it wasn't even close. I think <laughs> it, there was a funny situation, though, where he tinkered for Blightsteel Colossus. I Dak Faden and stole it. He played a Dak Faden and stole the Blightsteel Colossus back. Nice. I um, played another Dak Faden and stole it back. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but it, it was actually more like, I preordained, pondered, shuffled, and 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 activated the first deck. <laughs> then found another deck. <laughs> I stole it and then won nice. the match with that. Nice. Um, in game Playing that Xerox game. Yeah. <laughs> in round three, I played Paul Callis, who was with the team Tusk on Survival. And I should say, preface is saying I never lost to Survival online in any of the challenges until you know this was my first match loss to Survival. I lost, hmm. and um, I actually balanced him away. In game one, I just got run over. He got he had like the perfect draw. I just got completely run over. Game two, I brought in, I think it was two ravenous traps, you know, all my fragmentizes, and I felt really good. Um what happened was I balanced like he played everything out. He had like um he played out a death right shaman, a uh a basking rootwalla, hollow ones. I wiped his entire board with balance. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and I had JVP. Nice. And I possibly DAC as well. And I got into a position where my hand was like, my only business spell, Force of Will, and Fragmentize. And he had two cards in his hand and a Bazaar. And he played Black Lotus. Hmm. And, I, and I had to decide whether to force Black Lotus or not. Hmm. And it's a kind of, it's maybe a scenario we'll bring up in one of our scenarios episodes in the future. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to calculate how deadly it was. I don't remember my life, but I was probably like above 12, I want to say. Maybe in that range. And I was like, this is a risky play because he gets a green mana. If he has survival, he can play survival. And, and, and if he has a creature, he can like cycle twice. But he only had two cards in his hand, including the Black Lotus. Should huh. I force? And the, the, the problem was I had no more business in my graveyard, even though I'd been ticking up the Jace. So I had a JVP yeah. that had balanced and flip and, and, you know, was was ticking up, but I had no draw in my graveyard. So okay. if I use the force, I lose my ponder or whatever, right? Yeah. So I was really iffy on that. And I had fragmentize in my hand. So he goes, so I let the he, he goes sorry, he the black the black lotus, he I let him resolve black lotus and he cast survival with two more cards in his hand. So he had three cards. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So I could force the black lotus or I could force survival. And again, I'm in the same scenario. If I let the survival resolve and he can't yeah. go nuts this turn, I can fragmentize it next turn and then I can play ponder and flashback ponder <laughs> and then I can, you know, just to keep yeah. digging. And I have force in case I really need to counter something, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm of the opinion you really need to counter survival there. Yeah, I, I should have. I should have probably counted the Lotus or the Survival or just, I, yeah, either one. <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't even mention he with, he only had like, because the balance wiped out all his mana, he only had like one other land yeah. or two lands. So it wasn't, and one of them was green. So he really couldn't, it was like he had Bizarre, actually he had Bizarre and a green mana. That's it. So post post Lotus, if I, ca- if I forced the Lotus, he can't even cast Survival. Oh, he cast it with the lotus. Yes, I let so him he had, resolve. He the, had like one green floating and an untapped land. Exactly right. Oh, so that that becomes two venge vines then, right? Yeah, Plus exactly right. He, he exactly right. What ha- actually happened was he used a green mana to f- discard Rootwalla he had in hand to d- to yep. bend venge vine. Then he activated Bazaar f- and discarded another Rootwalla, which I think he found with the Bazaar, or maybe he he whatever. I think at that point. 
yeah, he got the Vengevines into play and the root wallas and i'd already flashback balance so i was just run over i was dead yeah yeah so i lost that match i should have i don't know what would have happened if i had forced i would have had a fragmentize in hand and been ticking up jace maybe i would have drawn about <laughs> a, a, a you know a, a business spell i don't remember what i drew right right um but i did com- he would have been you know he if i forced the survival he all he has i guess is a basking root walla which is fine for me <laughs> you know um i probably win that game um, my next, so I'm one, one, and one going into round four. And my next opponent is a Kyle on PO, Kyle Montgomery. And, um, he, he actually had two draws, I think. So he, we were in a weird situation <laughs> where I was paired. He, he, I, he was paired down, I guess. Um, and he was playing PO. The match goes exactly as I expect. You know, I actually lost game one because I think he had lost a library. Game, I won game two. Game two was hilarious. <laughs> I balanced. Him in the, out of a hand. I blew up his board. I balanced Kevin. I balanced a hand to no cards, uh-huh. where he had to discard. I kid you not. <laughs> two paradoxical outcomes and treasure cruise. Wow, were the last cards <laughs> in his hand, and he had awesome. no. Yeah, it was unbelievable. It was the best balance ever. <laughs> but in game three, what happened was we had like five minutes left, and I had I had like resolved ancestral, flashback ancestral, and I had to make a split decision. Do I try and go for the win or maintain my advantage? Mm-hmm. And so I decided with like three minutes left that I had to just go for the win. So I ticked up JVP instead of flashing back Gush and, and Cantrips. Mm-hmm. And I allowed him to slip through my net. Mm-hmm. And he actually beat me on turn five of turns. Oh, I could have just I could have just gone for the draw, but then my record would be one one two. <laughs> you yeah. know, I I would have drawn. There's no way I lose that game if I fl- if I flash back my draw spells. I mean, I yeah. had firm control of the game, but I decided I wanted to go for the win. And so that's like my only paper loss against PO with this deck in like <laughs> months. You know, or yeah. or loss at all against PO in months. But it was only because you know he actually thought he was just going to lose there. But I I had to go for the I had to find a way to win. And that's one of the problems with my deck is that like. If mentors in the bottom thirty cards, you basically aren't going to find it until you dig through time the second time. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, so another loss and or draw that is directly attributable to how slow JVP is at yes. finishing a game. Yes. I'm not sure I would have won with Snapcaster Mage, maybe, but maybe, yeah, maybe it's, it's hard to draw that equivalency, of course. Right. The game goes dramatically differently, but Exactly. I mean, because JDP is the thing that got you into control, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> it's the thing that got me to, got me there yeah. in the first place. But it's the price you pay. Right. So I, I, I made a tactical decision or strategic decision to try and go for the win, and it resulted in a loss instead of a draw. I mm. could have easily drawn and been 1-1-2. So my next match is Jeskai Xerox, which I'm really good in the Xerox mirror, and I, I won that matchup. Um, so I'm 2-1-2. and two. Then I play Grixis. No, you're not 2-1. I'm sorry, 2-2-1. Then my next matchup is against Kevin Oxling playing Grixis P.O. Slavery. He basically says he's playing Rich Shea's deck from 2014 <laughs> in the VSL. Nice. And that is just an easy matchup. So I want, I'm 3-2-1. Then I play a guy named John McCart- McCarty on Xerox who you played. No, wait. No, you played Thomas Kaufman, right? No, I played Kyle from the top eight, and I played Jeremy no, who Beaver. Was the, who was these, the Delver player you played, I meant? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That was in the trial. Oh, okay. That was in the trial. Oh, okay. I thought you played him in the main event. No. Because I, 
he had a he he had an infant that his wife had was carrying around behind him it, periodically. That was the guy oh. played. He was playing Esper Xerox. Oh, that is that is not the same player. Then okay, I thought you placed that played against that guy. So round seven, I played against um, John McCarty on Xerox, and again I won. So I'm I'm rolling again the Xerox matchups. I'm four Good. four two one. <laughs> then I played Thomas Kaufman, who's playing the Esper Xerox, who was playing basically Delver Mentor Wastelands, and he was playing with um what's the the black white creature that that's good in the xerox mirror Comball. Comball, right he played that mm. balance was the unbelievable mvp in that match i mean it was nice. just like <laughs> balance just wiped him out over and over and over again um it was one point where he was like he had like a full hand i had no cards in my hand and i resolved balance and he was like completely blown out it was unbelievable <laughs> <laughs> it was unbelievable um round nine i played against rug so i played like an incredible string of Xerox decks mm-hmm. and then blue decks. Round nine against Rug, Ro Hinojosa playing Rug, and I, I beat that again, balance as an MVP, so I'm 6-2-1. Six, six, was this a, a Pyromancer list or more of a controller list? No, this, or was, what? this was Rug, Pyromancer, py, you know, Pyromancer. Yeah. Uh, but we're talking about Tarmogoyfs or? No, no, just just the, the, the list you see in the Vintage Challenges. Okay, Close so close to, to Spurling's list. But. Close to Spurling, but Spurling took it in a more extreme direction, right? Okay. Gotcha. And then the, my last round was P.O., Vincent Patrick. He was really annoyed with me, I think, because I had more counterspells in my hand than he than he ever had threats in hand the entire match. <laughs> and so, and I probed him a lot. So every time that he went to tutor, I would say, okay, I know you're, you know, basically, I don't know. I guess I would say like something, so you're probably going to get key. You know, I wasn't trying to be rude about it, but like, <laughs> like every time he did anything, apparently I... His, his friend told me later on that he was annoyed that I knew everything he was going to do. So, but um, but yeah, that was. I forgot to also mention the P- Kyle Montgomery. He he played Karn against me, and I like totally overwhelmed the Karn. Like I like I forget exactly what happened, but it was hilarious. Like I I like balanced away. Oh, I balanced all away his construct constructs when I balanced out those POs out of his hand, mm-hmm. and I like dacked his his like other his next construct and i like think i like stole the carn actually with dak like oh, ultimate nice. or something it was really <laughs> really crazy so I, I ended up my tournament i ended up seven to one um with a my only showing. yeah my only loss being to a po player that i um base i ended up i think was a 22nd so basically my same performance as 2015 yeah <laughs> in the top top 25 of a pretty big tournament. Um, but my only loss really was survival. I gave up a, ga- a match against uh, P.O. to d- avoid a draw, and I drew against White Eldrazi. Yeah. So so I really I really wouldn't change anything. I mean, I think my deck doesn't really lose to anything. I mean, I have winning matchups, aggregate records against everything in the format. Um, I think that I could probably f- continue to f- get a little bit better situationally. There's minor things. I think one of the things that was really apparent to me in the trial, even though I started out 4-0, was that playing the paper version of the deck versus the online version is so much more operationally complicated. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the most operationally complicated deck I've ever played because <laughs> I'm playing all these onboard Planeswalkers. And so mm-hmm. when you're playing with DAC and JVP and you're doing cantrips, there's so many simultaneous decisions that you're making that, that link into each other. Mm-hmm. You know, like the timing of when you activate do you, how do you sequence the DAC and JVP and Fetchlands and Cantrips? All those really matter for maximizing, like when you want to flip. And there's times when you actually want to like do tricks with JVP, like like block with JVP and then yeah. flip in response to a block, like which is a big play against White Eldrazi. 
Or the other operational trick is when you have a flip JVP and a, and a, a non-flip JVP, mm-hmm. you know, w- like how do you sequence that for maximum advantage? Those are operationally complicated. Things can get really, really naughty. And, and, <laughs> and playing it online doesn't give you the dexterity that you really need to, to manipulate all the paper cards. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of like, you know, logistical things that have to happen that, that I was a little bit rusty on, even though I did play it at a local tournament, Eudaimonia. Uh, the week before, but it's still a, there's a lot going on. Yeah, absolutely. I found some very satisfying interactions involving Chandra Torch that I had not practiced very much because I mean I had practiced, I had tested with her, but she was added to the deck like less than a month before the event. So she's got there a was lot lots going of on. Inter- interesting interaction. I mean, she does a lot. So, she I mean, does a lot, and yeah. her first plus ability where you reveal the top card and then you can either cast it or exile it. That's a um, big choice. It is a big choice, and. To your point about choosing a, a, a pivot point in your game against PO vis-a-vis Jace Telepath Unbound as to whether or not to go up or down with him, it's 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 a smaller choice with um with Chandra because it's it's like two damage versus a card. It's not quite the same choice. It's you're always raising her loyalty. But I did find it was interesting in skill testing in a couple of points because my deck, unlike yours, has access to that snap bolt plan. Yeah. Plus, plus death rights well, can go to the dome and, and, I do have and surprisingly, I do have one yeah, bolt, right. but, <laughs> but it's, but I found that there are many games where I think I misevaluated how useful a shock would have been as opposed to playing the one card off of Chandra, which is yeah. pretty antithetical to our card advantage, our Weissman, exactly. our roots, right? But I, I find those kind of planeswalker interactions that you're talking about very satisfying. Um, I wanted to add a coda to my decklist performance, which was that um, uh, some guy online, Pascal5000, has actually done consecutive top eights in the Vintage Challenge with my list in particular. Nice. Like, he, he top eighted the day after the Vintage Championship, and then he top eighted this past weekend. I played it. I played in the Vintage Challenge. I went four and two. I actually lost again to Survival, my second <laughs> loss ever to Survival. But it was a Survival match where <laughs> my opponent literally, in, game, in the final game, um, attacked in one stroke for 20 damage oh. like he literally had nothing in play and then he goes he had wonder in the graveyard and i had mentor in play and he literally set it up so that he could get he played three hollow ones and two venge vines and attacked for 20 so it was wow. a really bizarre situation <laughs> you can't balance that right there's nothing you can do about that <laughs> i think That's he true. had anger too but it was unbelievable um um and then i lost a, a xerox mirror which i rarely lose yeah. um and I went four and two in that challenge, but he he made top eight with my exactly my list. Nice, um, it's a good yeah. list. I, I as, as Jeskai lists go, I'm, I'm I have been in the Snapcaster camp for a while, but I'm really compelled by the JVP balance interaction that you're describing, especially. I don't know if the rug deck is better or worse. Uh, I, this the spell pierce thing is I you know I was looking for something like spell pierce. One of the things that actually scares me is DPS. Because in the past, for DPS, I've always had Stony Silence and or Fluster Storms. Mm-hmm. But I cut... It's, earlier this year, I just realized that my best plan against PO was just Disenchant, not Stony <laughs> Silence. Yeah. And and um, obviously, Disenchant is good against uh, Defense Grid, but, Par- but Pyroblast is not that great against DPS. Yeah. And if they, can, if they can go Cabal Ritual, um, Dark Petition, Necropotence, you're going to lose. <laughs> and you're gonna, just going to lose unless yep. you unless you have like a rest in peace or something or can you know somehow prevent them from right. So I, I have been wondering about I've been looking for a card like that. 
I might test a spell pierce. I'm not big on Flusterstorm right now, even though I'm big on the fl- card Flusterstorm in general. Uh-huh. I'm not really big on it at the moment um, because it fits well with what I'm doing overall. I like the fact that it can counter Planeswalkers. I might test it in my Lightning Bolt slot. The whole reason I have Lightning Bolt primarily is because I want a Swords to Plowshares that can pick off Planeswalkers. Yeah. It has that versatility. By the way, I also am big on Mystical Tutor, which reinforces my balance plan. Sure, um, sure. But, um, so I might test a Spell Pierce in that slot and just see how things go. I also like being able to have a card I can tutor for to win the game when my opponent is at low life. <laughs> I've been in too many situations where like right, my opponent right. is... And I, so um, I'd, li- I'd like to test Spell Pierce, but I- I'm intrigued by Rug, but I don't think I'm going to go on Rug. I think JVP... I think the plan of JVP with five Moxen is better against Shops, actually. I mean, I wouldn't... You know, look at Sperling's match against um, Rich, right? I mean, if he had a Mox in play at the beginning of that game, he doesn't lose. You yeah. know, yeah. he didn't play it because he had he drew one of them. But <laughs> I, I mean, I really think having the Mox in is is just really where you want to be. I don't think you can consistently beat Chops. You, you can't consistently beat Chops at all. But the <laughs> best chance to have is if you go all in on the Mox in. I really believe yeah. that. Yeah, that's my belief. And and as long as I think that Chops is the best deck, and I still think it is. Um, Despite it not winning, um, PO winning, I think that you have to have the five Moxen, and therefore I will be on JVP over Snapcaster, and therefore I'm probably going to be on White over over Green. Understood, makes sense. So, what else do you want to cover about our experiences before we move on to the top eight? Well, I'm not sure if there's much more to say. We both comprehensively <laughs> presented our decks and our deck choice, card choices, and our positioning within the format. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you and I both knew what the metagame was coming in. We read it almost perfectly and I think possessioned ourselves well. Why don't we talk about the results then? Absolutely. So, Steve, we predicted a diverse metagame. It was the the talk of our show before the event. We were fairly spot on in our expectations for how the broader metagame would appear. This top eight is the most diverse vintage champs top eight by a long shot in a long while, I would say. Possibly ever, but certainly in a long while. Yeah, possibly ever. And it's a stark contrast from recent years that have been so heavily tilted towards workshops. So how do you want to tackle this? Why don't we just start from the bottom? Why don't we start from the bottom up like we always do? All right. So finishing the top eight, basically, in five through eight. First, we have Cosmo Quack. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce Cosmo's last name. Cosmo was on Grixis Thieves, which is the sort of deck that we've obviously allowed for in our prediction, but not the sort of deck that we kind of account for in terms of top eight performance in recent memory, right? Right. It, ironically, it made top eight in the hands of Nathan in the last big paper vintage tournament, the SCG Con. And here we have it again. And there's not too many surprises in this list once you are familiar with the archetype. But there is one cute little new addition from a recent printing, which I find a, a little, I mean, somewhat clear, but also somewhat surprising. And that is Goblin Crater Maker. Yeah. Now, this goblin, we 
discussed we reviewed it. It, it, it in our set review, but you and I were not high on it. We acknowledge that it is flexible card, but it strikes me as a, a comparatively low power card for the Thieves archetype, don't you think? Yeah, it doesn't. It, it's it's pretty low power level. Yeah, it's flexible in that you can kill creatures, you can kill colorless non-land permanents, so it has game against shops and Eldrazi, and even the even a little bit against outcome. But I'm I'm genuinely surprised not to see something more like, say, Shattering Spree in that slot. Yeah, I think I agree and with there, you. I would prefer there, something like not, that. I'm I'm racking my brain for a particular motivation for the Crater Maker. He even has a second in his Maybe sideboard. Maybe he feels like he wants something that can attack Planeswalkers and do what you're describing. I suppose so. That is a valid use case. And he does only have a total of two pyroblasts, one main and one sideboard. So I guess Planeswalkers are an interesting thing. But keep in mind, he's a Notion Thief deck, right? You want a card that can attack a Planeswalker, a Notion Thief is pretty darn good. And also, you can have all the Jason the Mind Sculptors and Dak Fadens you want if I've got a Notion Thief in play. <laughs> so the the Grixis Thieves deck kind of is the sort of deck that doesn't really need to remove a Planeswalker to answer it, so to speak. Is there anything else about this list that draws your eye? Well, it's it's pretty it's a pretty unusual deck, but it's the kind of thing that can top eight a tournament like this. You know, it's just it's got the key vault combo, it's got the powerful Grixis cards like Yogmas Will and Tinker, um, a pair of mana drains. It's it's I think the Notion Thief and Wheel of Fortune is a really janky combo. I don't think it's nearly as good. I think he just probably I'm not saying he ran hot, but I think that it's it's not something that it's not something that could consistently top eight a vintage challenge let me put it that way your your threats and your answers need to line up fairly reliably yes. well against your opponents in he, order to run this consistently good through 10 rounds Yeah, he has a good sideboard and again it's anchored by three DAC, which is just the best planeswalker so mm-hmm. so yeah when it's you, a pretty straightforward list aside from that crater maker i think any deck with with that's centered around DAC means that it can get rid of its bad cards and find the good ones. And as long as it can generate some card advantage, it's going to be in a decent enough position. Absolutely. And he's filled with enough broken vintage goodness that this is the sort of deck that we always account for about 5% of the metagame too. Right. <laughs> so let's move on then and talk about the next 5-8 through eight deck, which is Elliot Burke on Landstill. Landstill is the sort of deck that you have been personally watching very carefully i think for the last few years you've always kind of pulled me along in terms of predicting numbers of landstill <laughs> for our last well, couple of years well, number one there's a lot of people in the bay area who play landstill mark ars in particular okay. won the vintage challenge earlier this year with it he wins tournaments in the bay area with it it's popular in the bay area um blue white landstill it did win a vintage championship a couple of years ago despite the circumstances mm-hmm. it's got just some powerful things i mean you know it, Supreme Verdict is good against Xerox decks. Uh, Stony Silence is good against the PO decks. The the density of Counter Magic and Virtual Card Advantage is real. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think you probably have to get a little bit lucky because so so many of the matchups are close. But if you're a great player playing it, I think you have a good chance. And he had, I, I think at one point he had Moat in play against something. He's got Arcane Laboratory. So there's a lot of powerful silver bullets in the sideboard on top of that. Yeah, I was about to point that out. This is another deck. It doesn't play out the same way that Grixis Thieves does, but you still, you also need your your threats and answers to line up very well. But unlike, this deck probably has the most haymaker answers of any exactly. archetype exactly. In, in the format. Totally You agree. mentioned the, the three big ones. Lab, 
moat, also energy flux out of the sideboard, as well as other more common things like rest in peace and containment priest. It's got the the counter magic to keep one of those threats and make it stick longer than the average deck could. There's a lot of decks that have, say, rest in peace or priest, but they it's not too difficult for a dredge player, for example, to remove those cards because you expend a lot of energy mulliganing to and then finding and you know, resolving these cards. Landstill is the sort of deck that can much more reliably, between two mindbreak traps and three mana drains, it can more reliably keep these haymaker hate cards in play. Yeah, there's I, I don't see anything especially noteworthy about this list. Supreme Verdict is a staple in the deck now. Three mana drains is is arguable, right? It does have a few more Xeroxy kind of things than I would normally expect. He's got Gitaxian Probe, for example, and Time Walk, which I that's a number of Landstill diehards will tell you may be trap kind of cards for this archetype. Things you don't want to draw when there's a standstill in play, right? Right. But that's that's not a strong debate. It's just the sort of thing that people who are very into this archetype will will point out. I like his his creature lands though. Three Mishra's factories, one fairy conclave. Interesting. There's yeah. all so he there's can a, fly there's over a tension. The yeah. Yeah, there's a tension over the years in terms of which creature lands are best in this archetype. It, for many years it was just four factories or no, but I think there's been a little bit of a relaxation in that sense because there's a lot of people who recognize that you can't just sit and play land to go against this deck, even if they don't have a creature land. <laughs> You're still actually actively falling behind. Right. And so I think there's been an acknowledgement that you don't you don't need to have the max factories and you can show up your colored mana and have the positive interaction with Moat via Conclave. So next up, we have Marshall Arthurs representing Survival of the Fittest in our top eight for the first time. That Pretty awesome. In, in, in recent memory, yeah. I watched Mar- Marshall defeat Blaine Christensen near the end of the event. I don't know if that was, was that round 10 that I watched that? I'm sorry if I don't remember if it's nine or ten, but Blaine, if you don't know, was playing Ubastax, uh, you know, decades old Ubastax at this point, and is mono red with welders and stuff. It's been updated to have things like Cavern of Souls to ease your welders resolving, but it was otherwise straight up Ubastax, and he had a very interesting match against Marshall that involved the 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 last turn of the game. Marshall started with whole bunch of creatures in play, like two or three Venge Vines and Hollow Ones and uh, Basking Root Wallace. But Blaine had a smokestack with like four counters on it and another one with one counter or something that he had been ramping. And so Marshall had to sack down to just Survival of the Fittest to start his main phase. And he still won the game that turn because he had one oh, land God. and he had multiple cards in hand. Shows he you. had one yeah. land and he, he made green... And ditched a creature and turned it into an Elvish Spirit Guide, and then sacked that spirit or exiled that Spirit Guide to ditch another creature from his hand and turn that into an Elvish Spirit Guide, and then exiled that one to get the third creature out of his hand and turn it into a Hollow One, and then he played a Hollow One and he cast another Hollow One. Oh, one of the creatures he discarded must have been a Rootwalla. That's what it was. One of them early was a Rootwalla. The final creature was a Hollow One, getting back all the Venge Vines and attacking for the win. It really displayed the power of this archetype and its resilience to just any kind of board control as you've observed in your report i would say though that this list while it is the the representative for this archetype in the top eight is definitely not the only one that's out that's going right, right. now this is a what i would call a, a traditional road, sort of yeah yeah this is a bant list that's modeled very closely after the list that won asia vintage championship and 
He says he played. And I would expect when you. Sorry, go ahead. Well, in his commentary, he says he played a hundred matches on MTGO. I don't know if he's being accurate. If that's precise, but <laughs> but um, <laughs> he certainly you know got got to tune this up a bit. Well, it he certainly knew how to play it very well. I would say. And unfortunately, he didn't go very far in our top eight, but he, he ran up against the, the brick wall that is Namtran. It was <laughs> sweet to see that deck, though. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I expect it won't be the last time. So the last of the five through eight is Matt Sperling. As we've alluded to, but maybe not specified on this cast, he was on Rug Pyromancer Control. And just for review, his list has three Snapcasters and three Young Pyromancers. I won't list all the cards, but the salient features are two main deck Ancient Grudge, one Fluster, two Lightning Bolt, two Pyroblast, two Spell Pierce, and four Dak Faden. Yes. Plus a Jace the Mind Sculptor. Zero Library of Alexandria and zero Gush. Yes. We talked about we talked about those two exclusions with Matt sometime <laughs> during this. What was that? It was the next day, wasn't <laughs> right. it? It was it was Saturday, yeah. And uh he had some some decent rationale for why he had taken this approach. He really views this as an ex- exceedingly low mana deck. And yeah. I mean he does actually he goes in for the virtual card adv- virtual card advantage in a big way. Yeah. I I think the issue I have is that and as the top 8 match revealed, Young Pyromancer is just not powerful enough. It's just not even it's barely a speed bump for the workshop decks. Yeah. Primarily because of Ballista. I mean if they draw Ballista it just does nothing. It's just dead on the water. The other thing I mean, so Matt actually played at the Eudaimonia tournament the week before the Vintage Champs, and we he played Bug, and we got to talk for a bit. And he he said the one thing he knew he wanted to do was play a DAC deck. He didn't know which configuration around DAC. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, so you could go Grixis, you could go Esper. You, I mean, not Esper. You could go uh, Just Guy. You could go, uh, you know, Four Color. You could go all different kinds of directions. Um, I, I think that I don't begrudge him one bit for playing Wasteland over Library. I think that there mm-hmm. is a case to be made that that wasteland is better than library. That library is library is often a trap. That you play library and it not only doesn't win you, but allows your opponent to win. But I did win a lot of Xerox mirrors with library, and I I, I wouldn't <laughs> you know. And the other thing about wastelanding a library as opposed to having it is even if you wasteland your opponent's library, if they get a draw out of it, they still replaced itself. You know, um, right? But I so I can't begrudge him for cutting library, but I do think that cutting gush is a mistake. And he says he'll defend it to the help, but let me just make a couple points. Number one, <laughs> he doesn't even have the three basic lands I have. He has one basic island and one mountain. So mm-hmm. number two, he's a four Dak Faden deck. You know, he says that all he wants to do is get to three mana and keep it there. But yeah. what if you only have two mana? And in, in this mana base, <laughs> you, you know, with one, with four, was it five, with seventeen mana sources, there's a non-trivial chance he'll be stuck at two mana and a, two mana. You know, Gush gets you the third land drop. Not only that, mm-hmm. Gush allows you to turn, like, let's say you did play a third mana and you really only ever want two the rest of the game. Like, you can then use Gush to ditch it to Dak. The synergy between Gush and Dak is enormous. So I just don't believe for a second that he's right on cutting Gush. I just don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm basically with you. He had some reasonable points about where he, the way he approaches the deck, I think. But I really think his objection to Gush comes a lot down to personal preference. I but, do think but, it's it's just amplified the absence of Gush, given that he has four Dak Faden. Right, but isn't his preference to run and resolve Dak? And what card helps you resolve <laughs> Dak more than Gush? I mean, Gushing into Dak not only gives yeah. you the additional mana, but it often gives you the protection you need to protect Dak, you know? Yeah, agreed. So, I totally agree. Regardless, Matt's it is a strong performance and a good 
target build yes. for rug pyromancer Agreed. and he uncovered some key interactions like the replacement of library into wasteland coupled with his two ancient grudges coupled with four Dak Faden made his spell pierces better than any other spell pierce deck totally on the market. If I was playing yeah. his deck though, I think what I would do is I would cut the Jace for Gush and I would cut the third Pyromancer for a fourth Snapcaster. That's probably Reasonable. what I would do. Reasonable. So uh, an excellent performance by Matt. Unfortunately, his top eight draws were oh, just was, not consistent oh. with getting it done. I definitely think he should have played that Mox against Rich though. Yeah, I would have. That That made a big difference. So, moving on then to third and fourth, we have Kyle Dorgan, who is the Paradoxical Outcome player that I lost to in the Swiss. This is a Esper Outcome list, the likes of which we've seen fairly commonly of right. late. A pair of Knight's Whispers, three Preordain, yep. two Repeal. Yep. So, it's got that kind of Xeroxy feel, even though it's got a ginormous mana base. Yep. And... Common features for the Esper version include two Comballs in the sideboard plus a Caracas to defend against opposing Comballs, but also Oath and other things. And two Karn, Scion of Urza in the sideboard. Yep. And I'd be interested to hear Kyle's... That's common. Yeah, that's anti-pyroblast technology. It's common. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear how Karn was for Kyle on the day. Notable in comparison to... Um, other outcome decks and the Age of Vintage Champion results, Kyle is on three Mox Opal. Otherwise, fairly it's straightforward. It's pretty stock, list. in my opinion. I, don't, yeah. I mean, three Opal's about right for the two Knights Whisper, two Repeal list. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other three-slash-four position player is none other than Rich Shea in his fifth Vintage Champs appearance. It's super impressive. That's super impressive. Yeah. Excellent, consistent performance by Rich, especially of late. He's on Shops, and this is... Uh, about as unnoteworthy as a shop well, <laughs> list as you can get, with one exception. Yeah. And that was his main deck, Triskelion. Yes, he won the fifth like. Ballista effect, which I think is really well-positioned. I mean, the the yeah. most elusive and hardest to deal with card is really Ravager. And it's it's Ravager that kind of makes this deck all... Come, it's kind of the glue that makes it come together. And the the trike, I think, is real. it was really a savvy decision. Um, I wanted to actually compare this list with his exact list from last year, because there's some notable differences. Um, mm-hmm. The main thing I wanted to point out, Kevin, is that they ditched he Montolio completely ditched Wim, uh, um, Chief of the Foundry. No, no, no. Yes, that. But they completely ditched in the sideboard um, the Golem. Oh, uh, precursor yes. Golem. Yeah. Yes. Which will be an interesting contrast to Nam's list when we get to exactly. It. So uh, just just to go over the sideboard, I want. Uh, hold on, let me pull up the deck list. Um, if you have it up, can you just do the comparison? I'll read it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, Rich's sideboard is one Dismember, four Grafdigger's Cage, two Hangerback Walker, two Powder Keg, one Ratchet Bomb, three Tormod's Crypt, two Worm Coil Engine. And his 2017 sideboard was three Tormod's Crypt, four Grafdigger's Cage, so those are the same. Mm-hmm. Two Sorceress Spyglass, those have been removed. Two Dismember, one Witchbane Orb, and three Worm Coil Engine. Yeah, I'm interested. The powder keg ratchet bomb thing is well, interesting, but well, also the split is interesting. Well, remember what he lost to in the finals last year? I do. It was to two powder Absolutely, keg and one ratchet bomb. So he yeah. actually went to Andy Markenton's list from last sideboard from last year with that configuration. Yep, yep. And So he's literally so changing all, not, like two or three cards one year later. <laughs> <laughs> and his main deck has two hangerback walkers going up to four post-sideboard. Yes, so he decided that's better than the Sorcerer's Spyglass, I guess. 
And there's no Chief of the Foundry to be seen in this list in the 75. Three main deck metamorphs. Which he had last year. Last yeah. year he had three main deck metamorphs, three hangerback walker, um, four steel overseer. It looks like he actually had zero Chief of the Foundry last year. His list was just three hangerback, four ballista, four ravager, four revoker, four steel overseer, four inspector, one lodestone golem, three metamorphs. That was his creature configuration. Okay. So his only difference from last year is he cut a hangerback walker and added a trike, right? That's it? That's it. Huh. That's all you have to... It's like old school. You just change your deck like one or two cards at a time year after year, <laughs> right? I mean, his sideboard, it, he basically lost in the mirror match and decided to use Andy Markington's sideboard, right? He <laughs> cut a worm coil. He added the two keg and ratchet bomb, removed the sorceress spyglass, and cut one dismember and the witchbane orb, and that's mm-hmm. it. Let's contrast that then to our runner-up Namtrans Ravager Shops list, which is very similar, except Nam has one Chief of the Foundry main, two Hangerback Walkers still, three Metamorphs still. So basically, are they ha- do they have the same main deck except Nam has a Chief over the Trike? I think it is. Yeah, that's the same main deck otherwise. And then in Nam's sideboard, he has another Chief, one Dismember, four Cage, three Null Rod, notably yes. absent from Rich's list, right. three Precursor Golem, as you said, notably absent, one Spyglass, and two Tormod's Crypt. It seems to me that that Rich and Andy decided to just, instead of, they, I think they just decided that the way they were going to deal with, with um, uh, P.O. was not Null Rod. That Null Rod hurt them too much. Much like I've decided yeah. to abandon Stony Silence is too symmetric. That I think they yeah. just decided to go the Powder Keg Ratchet Bomb route. And, and also just be more consistent. I think that's really what they've decided. That their deck, if they can get a fast clock the PO deck with a little bit of disruption, much like we saw in the Star City Games Power 9 Top 8, right? I mean, mm-hmm. look, Andy ran through the PO decks, and it was close. If they had another turn or another mana, they might have been able to Hercules, but the the burden of, of breaking out of the lock is really on the PO player. Yeah, and um, I, I do like the Null Rod, sorry, I do like the Ratchet Bomb Keg approach because it puts pressure on them to... They have to play Moxin in order to play that Hercules yes. recall if they want yes. to, and then the keg still punishes them for having done right. so. Even if you get so Hercules, they them. can't just go off with PO. Yeah. So I was going to draw the comparison to what to your conclusion as well before you did it, but it's very similar to what you have learned and uncovered vis-a-vis Stony Silence and Fragmentize, and I I think it's. It's good. I think that the whole community across multiple players and decks is gradually evolving in its understanding of this particular axis for fighting PO. Also, it just so happens that Keg and and Bomb provide uh, additional effects and utility in multiple matchups. So they're just right. much better sideboard right. cards in terms of, especially a long tournament, a somewhat tournament. somewhat varied tournament like Champ. Right, where consistency is really the premium. Yep. Yep. So I like it. I think that's good evolution. So Rich and Nam represent our workshop uh, players in the top eight, finishing in second slash and then third slash fourth place. But our winner, Brian Koval, is on Paradoxical Mentor. Now this is also a Knight's Whisperer very list. stock. I don't see yeah. anything weird here whatsoever. Uh, there is one card that I would point to, or Time two twister. cards really, and that is, he, well, he is fully on the Storm plan, playing both Mind's Desire and Tendril. Yeah. Which is not yes. necessarily stock. No, that's not. That's not stock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Time Twister desire, tendrils and Desire are not stock at all. Yeah. But the rest of the list in the main appears to be 
And he is on fully four opals, he, which makes sense. And he doesn't have Key Vault instead. He is no Key Vault. So he has Yawgmoth's Will, too. Right. Which I like. Me, me I like too. this approach. Would you play Mind's Desire, though, no, in this no list? No, way. Not a shot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it's correct in this list. I mean, it, it, PO is just a better Mind's Desire. <laughs> but, you know, right. Brian right. Koval had some major karma. He had an absolutely bizarre and horrendously <laughs> stressful route to this top eight. There was one player yeah. who made the top eight at X2 which was the guy at the bottom of the standing. That was Cosmo. Cosmo. Yep. But Brian Koval, well, I'll let you tell the story. <laughs> well, this is, this is really interesting, somewhat agonizing, and incredibly bizarre. So in round nine, Brian is playing what's effectively a win and in I think he must have been X1 at the time. And it's not, so it's not, I guess, yeah, it's a win and in If he wins, he can win and then draw. He is, I don't know what game it was, game two or three. Um, no, it must have been game three. It has to be game three for this scenario, this story to work. He is dead on board against his opponent and goes to his turn and says, and you know, it draws his card and evaluates his options. And I, I wasn't watching. I'm hearing this second hand from multiple people now, but he is about to extend his hand and say, yep, you got me. When his opponent says, oh, wait, I didn't discard. I have eight cards in my hand. And Brian says, Oh, okay. Well, th- that's fine. Whatever. And he's about to concede, right? But this is a feature match, and the judge steps in and says, "I'm sorry, that is a that's a GRV. Have you had any GRVs for this reason before?" And the player had. Brian's opponent, who was about to win their match, gets I guess it's the I don't I guess it's the third GRV and gets a game loss. So in the midst of preparing to extend his hand, Brian's opponent is out of the match. <laughs> Brian argued with the judge, asked if he could be uh, downgraded to a warning, right, or, or something, but it's competitive REL, and the judge says, sorry, this is, this is not an option to downgrade. Brian asks, <laughs> well, I think it comes actually next round, and Brian asks a different question. So, going into the next round, Brian has had this strange occurrence, <laughs> and so, but he's still alive in the tournament, has to keep playing. He's playing what is another win and in. He, it's game three, he is dead on board in the middle of extending his hand to his opponent, and his opponent says, oh, wait, I didn't discard. And, and Brian's like, you're, you're kidding, right? Judge steps in, because it's a feature match. Judge steps in and says, that's a GRV. Have you had any GRVs this tournament? The player says, yep, I've had more. And the judge says, oh, sorry, that's a game loss. Brian goes, are, are you kidding me? He goes through the same litany of things. Like, can you downgrade it? No. He says, can I concede this match before you give my opponent a game loss? The judge says, yes, you can concede this match, but it will result in both of you losing <laughs> because, because the game loss can't be avoided at this point. Concession is not faster than a judge call in, in competitive magic. So Brian just has to put his hands up and say, all right, this is, these are the cards I've been dealt, so to speak. So he makes it into the top eight, at, you know, having been interrupted by, by snatching uh, victory from the jaws of defeat, so to speak, in his last two rounds consecutively for the same exact reason and in the same exact scenario. What a crazy situation. I mean, that is really unbelievable. 
a, a stranger set of events I don't think you or I will ever see in, in, in terms of competitive magic and tournament outcomes. You know, I wouldn't be so fast to say that, Kevin, because we've had some pretty wild scenarios in the vintage cha- in this tournament before, you know, going back to Joe Bogard's, the irregularities there, and so on and so forth. We've, we, we have seen some weird stuff, I'll grant you that. But Brian still, he, he played very well in the top eight, and he kind of dominated this top eight in the matches that I saw. I, I did not watch all of his matches because they were not all available. But uh, congratulations to him, and congratulations to Outcome for taking home its first vintage championship, too. This was a really remarkable event, a wonderful weekend. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to run this tournament back again next year. I hope they don't ban and restrict anything because I want to play this format again. Well, I agree with your sentiment but i also think this is kind of like heisenberg's uncertainty metagame you can't you can't ever have this metagame exactly the same way again what with the the dynamics of survival being new and some of the things that people are learning about how to approach certain matchups like what we discussed in terms of um keg and bomb over rod for shops against po that's the kind of thing that evolves a metagame right and you've you and i both our decks both demonstrated the same concept. You with two main deck fragmentized, me with two main deck shattering sprees. These evolutions have a summative effect, I think, and shift things. So I, I don't think you're going to exactly get your wish, but I agree with your sentiment. <laughs> Plus, we got a few sets between this time and next time, so we'll have to see. So what are our summations of this year's 2018 Vintage Championship, do you think? What do you take away? Kevin, you know, I... I know people were commenting how diverse the top eight was, and I think that's the biggest takeaway. I think that, you know, having this top eight that's, you know, two PO, two shops, survival, landstill, Grixis Thieves, and Xerox, <laughs> and it probably should have been yep. one PO and two Xerox. You know, my biggest fear was that this was going to be a repeat of last year or look something like SCG Con, and we didn't get that at all. Yeah. This is probably the most diverse of all time, not just recently. And the gameplay has been fantastic. You know, people talk about just the top eight being diverse, but the games have been phenomenal. I I think that this top eight had some very interesting and skillful and well-considered gameplay. And I would encourage our audience, if they didn't get to watch it in real time, to go watch back and watch the replays. I can only echo what you said. I mean, th- this was a, a, a great champs, uh, one for the ages, a really interesting and diverse top eight, breakout performances by new decks and survival and established decks and outcome um we had repeat top eight competitors five times for rich twice for nam yeah so just to give everyone a heads up for the rest of the year our plan is we're going to do an end of the year show and then we're going to also do another scenarios episode if we can squeeze it in yep but i know people have it's one of the most requested show formats uh, of all time basically is scenarios so we've been gathering them over time and if you have some scenarios that you want to share with us social media is a good way to do it you counter an interesting game or hand state on magic online just send us a snapshot of it and we'll add it to our list of considerations for that show so thank you for listening to episode 84 of so many insane plays you can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com as always and until next eternal weekend we wish you many insane plays Ha, 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 ha.